0: This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared ex-clamination against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred motives film in a different world. And the is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of Death? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will.
1: subliminal jihad episode 110 i am your co-host dimitri
2: i'm khaled
1: and today we're back with more grotto questions once again we're picking up the pace
2: Mm -hmm. um Yeah, blazing through. (laughs) I mean, kind of (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: blazing through the latter half of 2021's questions. Yeah, we're
2: on. Uh, Yeah, we're definitely into the latter half. We're almost to August 2021 in our question backlog. Um, So that's good.
1: Truly, I don't even remember some of these here are from August.
2: So we might get to some August questions today. Um, Yeah. Well. Yeah. No, we do. We do have. uh, Well, the acolytes can, you know look back and see if they still care about these topics they brought up back then. Hopefully they do. <laughs> Maybe we'll have more insight than we would have at the time. So in a way it might be good.
1: Maybe it might be better that way. Um And actually, yeah, I don't know. I feel like we've fleshed out some adjacent uh, fields like related to some of these questions probably since last summer. Um I think we'd already done our Eagles episode and yeah. Laurel Canyon. Had we done Laurel Canyon by August? I, I forget. I Think
2: so. I feel like Eagles around August that we did it. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway. Uh, yeah.
1: But we'll, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll we'll jump in. We got yeah. we got ten questions slotted today. Hopefully we'll get to them yeah. all. That's usually
2: what we have slotted. Uh, but slotted. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> let's <laughs> go. go. Let's go. All right. Okay. Ooh, all right. Uh, um, I'll read the <laughs>
1: first one. Um, this is from Monty on July 29th of last year, they ask, was the Something Awful forums an op? A lot of sus, all caps, characters, parentheses, Brown Moses, Brace, Vile Rat, Felix, all of weird Twitter, the original four chaners 90% of the grotto, <laughs> are current or former Something Awful posters. What's the deal?
2: Uh, hmm. Yeah, you know, I never was like a Something Awful poster. You'd think that it would be like something that The people I know who were something awful posters, you know, I'm thinking of like Tom and Don, like they have a I feel like they have a much more like honed sense of irony than I have. Even though I did go on 4chan a lot, like, you know, I think that
1: (laughs) you did. I remember I, I think back when I first met you in the late 2000s, you were the first person maybe to ever tell me about B. Yeah, on, and four I remember in us.
2: I think going on B. Uh, yeah, and like uh-huh. yeah, just
1: because yeah. I I remember there was a the, it was the first actually it was like the first popping up of anonymous and right, they were the going Scientology. after Scientology. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, did did you go to that? I yeah, a
2: cringe <laughs> thing about me is that I went to like in New York the first like uh, you know protest outside Scientology op chanology uh i yeah, was at that and it was yeah like as lame as you would imagine uh like you know
1: i remember you saying at the time it was like very lame like yeah
2: <laughs> yes the people there were lame i think someone said like you sir are amazing like out loud you know like to somebody um, wow wow that's thinking, exciting like, that's yeah
1: that was i mean i i we I, I was yeah. always aware of something awful i think probably from the time i was like in middle school because i used to go on like ebombs world and god what were the other ones there were like a, there was like a handful of those types of websites you know yeah on, there on the crazier awful. edge there was like rotten.com
2: rotten.com yeah i remember Oof. people going on that when i was in high school um encyclopedia dramatica i feel like was kind of like
1: that was know, the other big one and I yeah. think you were the one who first showed me Encyclopedia Dramatica, like yeah. many many years ago, like, <laughs> right, again probably right. around the time of Project Chanology. Yeah, and I think so. So I was like always aware of kind of like this hacker, four chan, kind yeah. of yeah, quote unquote hacker.
2: Yeah, like they were like you know, of course, a lot of those people were called hackers just for like being mean online or like you know trolling or using pseudonyms, like when you know there were not like actual like you know. They were hacksaws, but they weren't like hackers for Well, the most I mean, part. Uh, yeah.
1: Most part. But then, yeah. you know, there were some figures that are still kind of lurking around today. People like Weave, you know, yeah. that mm. were involved in like these early kind of prankish hacking things and involved in all these forums that then went on. Like now he's like, I don't know, like embedded in the trenches of like Donbass or something like DDoSing like Russian fighter jets. Like I don't yeah. know what the fuck he's doing right now, but he's a Nazi and he's like somewhere in Eastern Ukraine and <laughs> he was one of the co-creators of Encyclopedia Dramatica, which also like definitely was like a cauldron of some of the most like toxic uh internet culture of like the late 2000s and like 2010s, I was just, right? I was
2: just going to Weave's uh, Wikipedia article just to see if I could, you know, see an update on what he's doing now. You know, the first thing that comes up when you Google him. And uh, I just, was, you know, scrolling eyes at the bottom and uh, my eye was caught by this sentence. He, quote, unequivocally supported the killing of children. <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> yep. Um, uh, exactly. Um, oh, and Sherid uh, Sherrod DeGrippo was the other uh, founder of that who is now the vice president, I saw somebody just posted the other day about them, uh, the, the vice president of threat research and detection at a company called proof point. Now I feel like mm. they, they ended up like working in some kind of like national security. Oh yeah. This, uh, the, it's a, she, so not like Sherrod Brown, but, uh, wow. She was named PR spokesperson of the year in 2021. Isn't that amazing? Mm. And, uh, yeah, is like a cybersecurity, sus cybersecurity, like expert, and uh, Weave is a Nazi who everybody was friends with uh, until like yes. 2015. <laughs> right, um, but the you know, DDoS
2: something- woman just this week, right, was uh, you know being implicated for her friendship with Weave or giving him IRC server space. At who some was point. the woman uh, for from DDoS? I forget what it stands uh, for. Like Emma
1: Best. Yeah, I'm a best. Oh, yeah. She's got that thing going on with Barrett Brown right now. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. They're fighting. Very mysterious, like, in the course of feud. their fight. That,
2: yeah. I a distributed denial of think. secrets. So, yeah, oh, distributed okay, denial okay. of service is what, you know, DDoS usually means. But, yeah, in this case, it stands for, you know, it's like a WikiLeaks type thing. Uh, yeah, but, you know, yeah. But, you I know, remember, okay. Right. So, anyway. so, yeah. Something so <laughs> yeah. Something awful.
1: Something awful. Um you know, was I guess it was created in 1999, and okay, yeah, that makes sense. I would have heard about it like around that time. It was founded by Richard Kianka, aka Low, low tax, tax, who, who I think died he changed last his year. name
2: to Low Tax, right? Like legally. Oh, um, I guess he did. I, was, so I thought so anyway. Uh,
1: yeah, and I mean, the uh, Monty is correct that like when you look at the kind of the lineage of like something of regular something awful posters there is a bizarre aspect of like every like this is like the troubadour of the internet or something like this is the laurel canyon of the internet it's like everybody who ended up having like a really big like twitter irony account or mm-hmm. like a really big podcast or yeah, like drill a was dirtbag on there, left right? superstar mm-hmm. uh, yeah drill was on there like really like these the kind of first uh the 1.0 version of, of like all of like the weird Twitter humor, which now is almost kind of like, I feel like seeped into the groundwater of like all Twitter to varying degrees. Like it's not just the weird Twitter people from something awful or uh, mm-hmm. Fyad or Fyad, whatever they call it. That was a like fuck yourself and die. Right yeah that was the particular sub forum that all of these people posted on for right. years right
2: was it fuck off and die was that what it was called or,
1: uh, it was f-y-a-d
2: right 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 uh fuck yourself and die all right got it yeah, yeah. oh i guess yeah. the guy who legally changed his name to low tax was uh a- brian anthony looper maybe there's a synchronicity there uh it got them confused he was the <laughs> one who murdered his election opponent in Tennessee. Uh, oh, he wow. changed his name from uh Brian Anthony Looper to Brian Low Tax Looper. And then he murdered the incumbent Tennessee state senator Tommy Burks. Uh, so that's another wow. low tax. Okay. Uh yeah. Um, but I guess Richard Chianca didn't actually change his name. I don't know why. Uh, got okay. confused. I mean they're both named low tax. Not a lot of low taxes yes. out there.
1: Not, uh, no, it seems yeah. I mean I guess you could be if you're like a passionate libertarian candidate, then <laughs> your nickname would be low tax i guess um yeah. but yeah but okay.
2: he chose low tax in honor of brian low tax looper actually oh okay so he yes. did do it in honor yes. of him mm-hmm. gotcha mm-hmm.
1: okay yeah. well interesting um yeah you know uh uh but yeah okay just to correct uh correct myself it's the fuck you and die forum oh, uh, yeah, that makes
2: sense. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah and drill did come from there yes all weird twitter That's, that um, was kind of and-
2: like the b of of something yes. awful, sort of like the most it intense and like de- depraved part. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And
1: I, I did not know this, but Moot, uh, who was the founder, founder of 4chan, of course, um, yes. mm-hmm. used to hang out uh, on something awful. Yeah. Before he started 4chan. Yeah, that makes
2: sense. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there
1: were like other websites that were kind of, I remember, kind of a little bit in like the orbit. Remember like Fark.com and Dig. I d- I, I remember
2: dig with two d's but dig to that was more like reddit to me it was kind uh, of like reddit yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah it wasn't hard fork was like, kind of like reddit too awful uh yeah reddit is like basically a term of abuse on 4chan uh, or has been for a long time i don't know if that's the case on something awful too uh, i mean i don't know if calling probably calling things reddit is like starting to become a bit reddit but you know that's the way with all things uh versus tragedy then is reddit but <laughs> um, yes, yes,
1: exactly. Um yeah. but you know, are they sus? Uh there's I remember years ago, like a lot of people, like I remember like Crypto Cuttlefish used to post about this kind of a lot, um, and talk about like the, the fiad burnouts that like became like all of the scions of like the dirtbag left, like right. after Trump and everything like that. And there are always a few like factoids that people would point to when you say, like, well, wait, what what's sus about? you know, uh, something awful or, you know, this particular forum. And there was, there was one thing that I always found to be a little bit like, huh? And that is that there was a regular poster there named vile rat, uh, Mm -hmm. who Monty mentioned. And vile rat, um, is one of the four, uh, American contractors that was, well, really he was a state department employee who died at Benghazi in 2012. Hmm. It was Sean Smith, right?
3: Hmm.
1: I think he was a uh, he was like an I.T. worker for the State Department who was with the ambassador and um, as dramatized in the Michael Bay epic uh, 13 hours. Um,
2: he mm, right. died
1: basically yeah. in the you know Benghazi ambush.
2: Yeah, I remember seeing his picture
1: uh-huh exactly so i mean that was kind of like a weird he was a surreal mod. wow they
2: lost a mod wow um, he was
1: a mod yeah. yeah so people would point to that that like everybody was hanging on this forum all day with like some spooked out like state quote-unquote state department guy that ended up getting killed at like a weird cia weapons base in benghazi you know there's just so much like weird shit around like the benghazi incident at all and the fact that there definitely were like special forces like military contractors like CIA people like all over the place there. Um, and I mean, I will say though that I think you can't win did mm-hmm. a kind of a, 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 something awful retrospective after low tax died last year. And I yeah. listened to it and it was highly informative and it, uh, shed a little more context and light on kind of the culture of the forum. And, mm-hmm. uh, and made me rest a little easy. That uh, easier that you know, Tom and Don. In fact, are not um, like Canadian intelligence or whatever. Um, yeah. Well, no, Tom because- is American intelligence. <laughs> You're right. Like, Tom and Don American.
2: is Canadian intelligence, but that's true. Not really, a threat to anyone. No, know, but he's, i he's, i find I, I find
1: you know, um know. i can it, i can trust them pretty well uh mm-hmm. when they're when they're talking about things when they're posting all bets are off but right. uh when they were talking about you know knowing a vile rat and how crazy it was you know when he ended up dead and just how bizarre that was and i don't think he really talked about necessarily like where he was or what he was doing on that forum though 4chan does have a kind of a history of like military people you know could be larping obviously yeah i mean both forms
2: are. have like have had mass shooting incidents in like i think 4chan more so and then later i think 8chan became like the go-to yeah. uh place to post when you're about to do a mass shooting yeah but like i think Christ, that there was well, at Christ least
1: Christchurch. that was facebook that was facebook and 8chan i think
2: yeah All right uh, um Yeah, I'm not, I don't quite remember, but, uh, yeah, but you know, they, but they
1: mentioned uh, that there, because this was the early two thousands when they were on this forum, that there were a lot of like military contractor kind of computer type guys that hung out on that, that were like stationed in like Iraq or something like Mm -hmm. that, you know, when the war was like at its peak, which I mean, at a certain point, like that, that was the internet in the two thousands. That was almost like the first time that you could be communicating with people that were like in a war zone that Mm -hmm. were just kind of chilling. Like I remember I knew somebody from high school who I think, you know, my freshman year of college, like he IM'd me one day Mm -hmm. and I had heard a rumor that he joined the Marines, but I didn't believe it. I thought like somebody was like, yanking my chain or something um this kid was like a big metal head and i didn't peg yeah. him as like a marine type but hmm. he like you know i am me and was like yo dude like i'm i'm in baghdad right now or like i'm in Crete <laughs> or something like that <laughs> and i'm like what and he was telling me all this fucked up shit and i, like, I didn't believe him because i just thought like dude there's no way you're like I aming me from iraq right now and then like that summer i saw somebody and they're like oh yeah dude like he shipped over there like he's like a sniper or something like that like Oof, it okay. was uh Weird. but he was saying yeah like i've seen so many dead bodies and like he was telling me some really dark shit and i was like okay man okay sure you are like like i thought he had told me some crazy stories in the past that were like seemed like tall tales but uh but i guess you know you could be a soldier Right. And mm-hmm. just be on uh, something awful all day, like in between patrols and like nowadays you you can just like do TikToks when you're like, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. fl- going out to the front lines. But I don't know, like, are they sus? I mean, all of these websites are sus. Like, yes, ultimately, in a, w-
2: in a way, it's like, uh, I mean, I don't really know like too much about low taxes. Back, I mean, I feel like I don't know. Is moot sus? Uh, I feel like low-tax might be more sus than moot just by virtue of... I mean, I guess it was a reference to that other insane man, so I don't know. But I find it odd to go by low-tax in general. It sounds like some kind of weird, you know. But anyone who's like a form administrator, like an administrator of one of these things... I mean, a lot of the times they hate like the forms that they have to preside over. I think that that was definitely the case like for most of those people, but... Yeah. I mean you have to be kind of an eccentric person to create something like this and to preside over it and like but in a way yeah, like definitely. I feel like what's primarily sus about it is like just the general like uh, sort of function of the internet in a way. in fact, you could argue it's more it's sorry, it's less sus than than like just Twitter is uh, you know I I think that like in a way it's like more of a like an inchoate form, you know there's this level of anonymity, but it kind of is the the groundwork or the the foundation that moves eventually towards uh you know something like twitter yeah i mean
1: twitter is indelibly influenced by these uh other kind of online communities like we when you started to see like weird twitter pop up like that was a thing where i feel like probably around like 2015 2016 i would start to see all these accounts that later would go on to be like the chapo like bernie bro like type or or like come town or something it's like who's this like nick mullen guy everyone keeps talking about you know what i mean and it's like oh i wasn't on something awful so i just sort of like was not paying attention to like any of that and like that sensibility of humor like Mm -hmm. i mean eventually you do stumble upon somebody like drill but it's still kind of like i'm not quite getting like the glee that people are getting out of this you know Mm -hmm. like just like uh, typing like You know, with like three commas and saying my dude all the time. Like, (laughs) it's just. just I don't know. I I
2: feel like that's almost like a little bit like. I mean, yeah, like I I feel like that's that's almost like the level of like being derivative, I guess. Of like the, I feel like the people who rose to the top, like in that environment, did have a little bit of idiosyncrasy to them, but then yeah, yeah, it became a certain style, but. I mean, just like the way that uh, people interact, like, I mean, there's a different tenor to it. And again, like I was never on something awful, so I don't like truly know. And I would not like, you know, I wasn't about to like go on there now to like investigate and say, like, I got an impression of it. I mean, Mm -hmm. the way but the way that people interact, like on 4chan, I definitely can see it's different because you do have like a, a name associated with your account. You know, you can't like. Uh, you're not constantly anonymous people don't like post agreeing with themselves you know it's not it doesn't yeah. have the same level of chaos per, perhaps you know and uh and i think that turnover. ports over to
1: twitter very easily that you yeah. are like a known quantity and yes. can kind yeah. of migrate it over and
2: yeah and the rift between like anons and non-anons and blue checks and things like that i feel like you know, in some ways parallels yeah. like the sort of uh uh, the what they used to be called a uh, trip uh f words uh you know trip uh, f oh yeah yeah that's i right. D- that's uh, right uh, <laughs> everything on 4chan basically like any kind of attribute one could have like came with that attached to it at the time and I mean not at the time i say at the time but like you know if I went on there now probably still but uh Yeah, like, uh, so, but you can definitely see how, like, just the way, the mode of interaction that, uh, you know, bubbled up from, like, those uh, places, those more kind of chaotic environments, like, has become mainstream and even bleeds its way over into, like, you know, older forms of media, like cable news, where, like, a lot of the time now they just, like, read tweets and things like that, and... I don't know if that's good. I feel like that's definitely, that's no, maybe probably a soft thing. Well, we yeah.
1: eventually had like the president of the United States for four years was, yeah, he became poster. something. He was Yeah, chief. shit poster. He became yeah. a shit poster. Like he was absolutely a shit poster. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of where the energy came out of. And, and to some degree it's like understandable because it does cut through the kind of fake, you know, sanctimony or... Virtue signaling, or whatever, like basically, um, by shitposting and making a mockery of and being so hard to decode, like wearing such a shield of irony that it's impossible to tell, like, to what extent you're ever being serious, Mm -hmm. which is uh, can be a helpful thing on the internet where people are can be quite vicious and (laughs) like cruel and everything. Mm -hmm. So, it's very understandable that people would uh, kind of you know. I don't know, adapt in that way. And this is yeah, like a, a Petri mean, dish,
2: like not really, uh, based on any kind of like, uh, system for determining like what, like, you know, no real system beyond like a rhetoric for determining like what has value, uh, or it like, like pithiness or, uh, like is maybe the sort of salient criteria, but a criterion, but, uh Yeah, I mean, it was I, I think that bringing up Trump is interesting because, I mean, again, uh, we can't speak super well to something awful. Uh, but I think that this is in some way, really you know, just the 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 way he would like retweet shit like he would retweet like insane. Like, I you know, I know yeah. I remember one day, uh, you know, I noticed that he like, uh, it, you know, it came to my attention that he retweeted just like three, like totally nuts, like anti-Muslim like videos like in a row. Like just like from like some some like nuts like UK group or whatever you know something like that like an Act mm. for America type thing or like an EDL and <laughs> just like it was just like a blitz of videos like that it's like this is so like destabilizing <laughs> like you have no idea like who like why like I mean you guys like know why he did this but like how serious is he about this like you know like what I- indication should we take from this like uh is like yeah it's just like uh very uh destabilizing i think in general i think that we're witnessing like in many ways like the beification of like our entire political culture i, I think mean, you have to blame the internet at very, the core <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
1: like like it's ultimately the like the internet is almost like yes. uh, like constructed in this way to uh, yes. to turn the- people yeah
2: yeah, these forms were like you know, and Twitter now it has kind of the like, but bo- like it kind of has the uh, the worst of both worlds in some way because it has the aspects of the sort of chaotic aspects and the uh, you know aspects that I think like are sort of uh, a hindrance to any kind of like productive interaction. And the same goes for like most forms of like uh, you know social media and all the sort of things that plug into Twitter, like any like you know Substack, like our whole discourse, like you know everything is like shorter and shorter and shorter. Uh, you know, everything is like in this kind of like weird web of impressionistic associations, but yeah, you know, I think that, yeah, these things consolidated because it was a natural shape for the internet, uh, to take, you know, this, uh, it it was, those were like the sort of first kind of consolidations. I mean, IRC was like that too. And it really was like, you know, I mean, I know that there maybe like, uh, I feel like it was kind of like, uh. And I think this probably does apply to something awful. It certainly applies to 4chan. There are elements of like kind of like a boy culture, you know, where everyone's like like a nerd culture. Yeah. Like uh, or just even like, you know uh even though a lot of the like you know maybe this ties into some of the, the remarks we've had about like sort of this uh, sort of stunting of development that we witnessed like in recent generations but you know i feel like it was almost like a replay in some ways of like the kind of hazing that you see like in elementary and middle school you know like just like the ritualized bullying or i mean i guess you mm-hmm. can see that type of thing in college too like in fraternities or whatever but that was kind of the you know the form that it just uh, that it took and now yeah, they're saying Twitter kind of has the worst of both worlds and that it has, like, that weird chaotic element uh, where yeah, everything's in the sort of impressionistic web, but also it has, like, sort of uh like weird like authoritarian like elements you know like the jannies like you know reign supreme on twitter in a way they never did <laughs> on 4chan you know uh and like everything yeah. like gets labeled as being like you know uh bbc doesn't get labeled but like rt does and things like that you know uh yeah. are you sure you want to click on this link like it may contain like misinformation <laughs> you know or like things like that uh so yeah, it's like a weird, but I think that they're defi- they're definitely in a a genealogy, uh, for sure. You know, I think that the next thing will be, you know, I don't think this will be the next thing. I don't know why I said that, but I, you know, uh, I, I perhaps down the line, uh, it will be not like a matter of just like I. I wonder if people are going to find a way. Somehow, It was just a thought that occurred to me when I was seeing that thing that was like uh, like a sort of metaverse Walmart where you like go shopping. Like, I don't know what the purpose of this would be or why you would want to like virtually walk around like a store and like pick things out from shelves. Like what like what advantage that has over like just shopping online. But what, for every reason, they were like, look at what we can do. And well, the person like walking, it was like basically an FPS of Walmart. And okay. I was like, at some point, you're not even going to be like, Posting on these things that you're gonna go commit a mass shooting, you're just gonna be straight up like finding some way to get like you know like a needler or like the golden gun into the Walmart app and like you know <laughs> just that's gonna be like the new uh you know internet and
1: virtually well how do you kill people unless they have neuralinks and it's like the matrix where like if you die in the matrix you die in real life
2: I don't know maybe it'll just be like a form of harassment. We're like, you know... That's
1: true, yeah. That could be (laughs) a new form of trolling. Yeah. Because at a certain point, like, it becomes, like, a virtual experience where you get, like, killed by a mass shooter. That is kind of uh, traumatic, isn't it? Yeah. You know?
2: Definitely. Especially if you're buying, like, an Oculus Rift or whatever, uh, or a Neuralink, uh, then it would be like... Yeah, if it were, like, The Matrix, then definitely you would be in danger. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, yeah. Well, I'd say... I think all these platforms are also like infiltrated um, from the very beginning. I forget, I think it was 4chan that had like somebody, one of the people that helped set it up had worked for the Department of Energy. And there was like a weird connection with kind of, because they have some, kind. I mean, if you talk about, you know, Q Clearance, Q Clearance is Department of Energy for nuclear stuff. Hmm. So um, were there always like, Intelligence kind of uh, operatives like lurking on those boards and playing psychological games with people, and te- you know, like to what extent um, have you know what I mean? Like to to what extent does the Air Force have like a room, a server room, like full of you know airmen like clicking on <laughs> image board websites, like yeah, just uh like keeping it keeping the racism levels at a nice ambient you know temperature and mm-hmm. uh guiding the culture in certain ways who i'm knows? sure
2: that there are like feds on 4chan again i don't really know something awful i think it's a bit different like there probably are like you know at least one who has been on there but i, I mean i feel like 4chan became <laughs> yeah. a bigger phenomenon like in i mean we know at least about vilerat but uh yeah. You know, yeah. Like, uh, I mean, I think like after the attention that 4chan got after 2016, like, I'm sure that there's, I don't know like how big the room is, but I feel like there definitely is like a room of people clicking like on websites like that. If not 4chan, like then at least like 8chan, probably still 4chan because, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah.
1: People, st- I mean, the, they're yeah. a little past their peak. You know, yeah, I, I feel like in certain ways, but they're they're kind their of their edginess
2: now. has faded a bit, but yeah, they're still people still post their mass shooting manifestos on 4chan just to ensure like the you know greatest uh, you know of uh, reach. So yes,
1: exactly. It's a it's a fl- it's part of the whole brand at this point. To number two,
2: all right, yeah. Want to read it? Mm-hmm. All right, Young Howler asks. The recent Woodstock '99 discourse has me really wanting to dig into the sauceness of Woodstock '69. Obviously, lots of ties to the Laurel Canyon scene, but there. Are, but are there any good resources out there that really delve into the darker aspects of the OG Woodstock? I don't know. I would be interested to uh, like do an episode about Woodstock because I know that Woodstock was very sus. I'm not sure if like there's Mm -hmm. like a good book like dedicated to the susness of Woodstock. Yeah. Um, Like a
1: McGowan type book.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: I, you know, yeah, I, I think I would, I think it really does merit like a deep dive um, into all the players that kind of made it happen. And then also the representation of it afterwards, which a lot of people have said, you know, that the documentary that was made about Woodstock that was a huge hit really mm-hmm. cemented this like romantic view of what it was but if you zoomed out, if you were actually there and or if you just looked at like what actually happened there um there were a lot of like messy elements of it and i think uh, i think at least a few people died or you know got like you know airlifted back to a hospital and stuff and they had a lot of logistical problems, and you know people were freaking out on all kinds of drugs, and there probably were sexual assaults. Yeah, it was. It's interesting that Young Haller, uh, yeah, puts this in the context of Woodstock '99. Now, for this question, I went back and watched the documentary, which must have just come out after Young Haller asked this question. Woodstock '99: Peace, Love, and Rage. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is a is a pretty interesting document. It's like a fun and scary kind of ride through that that very uh sus music festival from 1999 which like i remember like watching it as like a middle schooler and it fr- and by the beginning i was like so bummed out that like i was too young to like go to like woodstock 99 and see <laughs> biscuit. but by the end of it it was like oh shit like everyone just burned everything down and it was like there was like mass rapes during like limp biscuit playing break stuff on honestly like w- going back and watching it you're like oh like astro world vibes like this is this it's the same thing it's like people were talking like when fred dürst was playing break stuff and It's the equivalent of like Travis Scott being like, and like doing the robot. (laughs) It's like they're like passing, you know, unconscious (laughs) bodies in front of him. Mm. And it's like that. It's like, I just
0: want everybody,
1: like, if you got some rage, like you're fucking pissed off at your boss, you got boy problems, you got girl problems. I want you to take all that negative energy, you know, while they're like, you know, they're like getting ready to like blow. Yeah. and then, you know, when you said, you know, I want to break your fucking face tonight. And then they, you know, the big drop happens like there. It's just like, yeah, the, there's such bad energy. And, you know, like they played like DMX, you know, DMX, we gave a great performance, but uh, but showed this like sea of white kids just like so excited to like yell like the N word and like call in response with him, um, which, you know, didn't age well and all that stuff but there are a few okay there are a few things that are interesting about Woodstock uh 99 um like it was uh it was held on a, mil, on, a on a retired military base like on an air force base which you know Woodstock a few Woodstock 99 was yeah or? Woodstock 99 so they moved it oh, hmm. to Rome New York uh which is like nearby Woodstock or whatever town that was and it was like on this decommissioned air force base which they thought the real advantage of it was that it was fenced off all the way around. So they couldn't have gate crashers. Um, but it had all these like problems cause it was all like hot asphalt and shit. And so like, that was kind of a weird vibe thing. And I mean, you know, the original Woodstock was not on an air force base, but it was it's on a like, hog
2: farm, which was on I I a hog farm. Interesting. Cause you know, it wasn't a, Wasn't there another hog farm connection? Wasn't like Wavy Gravy's camp like next or called the hog farm or something? I feel like Wavy Gravy's the hog farm. Yeah, I feel like Wavy
1: Gravy did have um, it was next to Camp Win a Rainbow, right?
2: Yes, it was an organization considered America's longest running hippie commune called the hog farm. Yes. And it was right next to Camp Win a Rainbow. Did he did he end
1: up calling it the hog farm like because of Woodstock?
2: Um. Well, it's best known for their involvement with Woodstock, right? Hmm, uh, so I see. Okay, so they
1: were in Manhattan's East Side in 1968 and 69. They were approached by Woodstock Ventures with a proposal for a festival. They had just bought land in Yano, New Mexico, and mm. had plans to depart New York and settle in their new home. But they agreed to work on Woodstock, and
2: yeah. But it, they were what, in,
1: in charge of security at Woodstock.
2: Yeah, but Woodstock was actually like on a hog farm, wasn't it? Or like no, it despite, was. I, I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, despite them. So huh. yeah, it's weird that they were like called the Hog Farm. Maybe it was after the fact that they like became the Hog Farm, but I don't know if that is the case. Like, it's a little
1: unclear. Did yeah, they like worship
2: of- pigs or something? Were they that? Were they truly that haram that they were like? We need to have this like in the vicinity of pigs. Okay, it was on a dairy farm so that's oh different. okay yeah Woodstock okay. Now, was on a dairy farm but the uh, the hog farm was involved in it yeah
1: very right. interesting okay mm-hmm. and think. okay I will I will throw out because we probably have to do like a full deep dive to like really get into the the sustenance of original Woodstock but I just I, I found a couple things that, you know to whet the appetite uh until mm-hmm. we circle back around I didn't realize this but I found a couple articles on taskandpurpose.com, you know, one of those, like, military websites, and it says, uh, that time the Army had to save a bunch of hippies at Woodstock. Huh. And I had never... I had actually never heard about this, but if you watch the documentary and stuff, you see all of these Army Huey helicopters coming in and out uh, throughout the entire weekend. So, apparently, like... If it hadn't been for the U.S. Army, Woodstock would have like completely collapsed into like a huge clusterfuck, like disaster, because so many more people went. I think they expected 200,000 and like 400,000 came. And so they had like food, water concerns, like all kinds of various supplies. There actually were a number of booths that got burned down at Woodstock 69. So because uh, vendors started inflating their prices once the shortages began. Mm -hmm. So it's like you actually did have kind of a lot of the same problems uh, that you ended up having at like Woodstock 99. And so there was a, let's see. Yeah, there was a sheriff, Sheriff Lewis Ratner said it's like you get a certain feeling there that something isn't right so we got permission to get army helicopters flown by stewart air force pilots and we already had them that morning when that thing broke i had the helicopters on the way the woodstock didn't frame itself as an anti-war protest Hmm, interesting once again like, like, you'd think they would. They did frame themselves as an anti war protest, right? Like, it's fucking Woodstock. It's yeah. interesting that they're just like, no, it's just like about good vibes. Like, hmm, how radical. Anyways, um, the festival took place during the height of the Vietnam War, and with the counterculture music scene closely aligned with the anti war movement, the sight of incoming U.S. Army helicopters conjured up images of American militarization. Huh. So, yeah, so John Morris, the production coordinator for Woodstock, was on stage when the hellos came in. It was like a wave, he said. You could see people start to look up. And all I said was, Ladies and gentlemen, the United States Army. And you could feel it and you could hear it, the tension. Medical Corps and the crowd broke into a cheer that was just fantastic. And just about then you see the red crosses on the side. Oh wh- how cool a good good guy army just saving the hippies. Mm, how yeah. so they they airdropped more than ten thousand sandwiches in addition to canned goods, water, fruit, wow. medical supplies, and blankets to the ill supplied crowd, refreshed Yay. and refitted. The party <laughs> raged on until august eighteenth, a full day longer than it was supposed to run, and the festival rounded out its set list with Jimi Hendrix's iconic rendition of the national anthem fitting and <laughs> that's the end of the article uh yeah fitting indeed right mm, interesting uh, so it <laughs> sounds like uh the army was doing a little psyop work um uh, basically yeah
2: i mean it's sus that i always thought it was sus that they were giving like you know they are like brown acid pills uh like you just being handed out and they were like uh you know extremely intense i mean i guess they were like multiple different kinds of like brown acid like some that were like too good and some that were like you know didn't work at all or whatever wasn't there
1: also brown acid at woodstock or sorry at altamont
2: I don't know. Maybe there was. not that the
1: rumor that that there was bad acid going around, which created like bad vibes like the Hells Angels? I know that
2: the brown (laughs) one is very like, you know, strongly associated with With Woodstock. woodstock. Yeah, Wavy Wavy is like, don't take the brown acid. (laughs) You know, like. Yeah, they had announcements
1: uh, like on the PA system. Yeah, Don't. Oh my yeah, God. And yeah. They little had to brown like walk pill. Walk
2: back and say like, well, you no, know, it's not poison, but you know, it's just not very good or whatever. Uh, huh. And then I they're wonder. Like, actually, the... there is some that is poison. Yeah, it seemed like a whole mess. I mean, they that did have a... like the whole like the the whole CIA gang was in attendance. You know, they had the Grateful Dead. Um, That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah they
1: had. Um, well, it it actually it's almost like kind of notable like how many people didn't go to Woodstock rather than um, like how many people. didn't did i'm gonna I'm just gonna see the lineup right now like was it it was so similar to altamont um uh,
2: yeah i guess led zeppelin wasn't there james taylor wasn't there
1: bob dylan wasn't there mm-hmm. uh the doors i don't think were there so okay so they had richie havens uh sweetwater Beach robbie shankar joan Baez, arlo guthrie Country Joe McDonald, he he did some anti-Vietnam stuff. Uh, Santana, Can He? Grateful Dead. The Rolling Dead. Stones
2: weren't there either.
1: No, they weren't. Yeah, Creedence, Janis Joplin, Sly and the Family Stone, The Who, Jefferson Airplane, Joe Cocker, Country Joe and the Fish, uh, Crosby, Sills, Nash and Young, and yeah, then three more three bands on the final extra day. Jimi Hendrix closed it. So yeah, I mean yeah pretty pretty heavy lineup you had all this acid going around and uh, i think that it's interesting because you would have to ask like what is the advantage to it's a little easier to see the advantage of you know the nefarious like mk deep state uh fucking up altamont and Mm -hmm. kind of or like the manson murders like slamming the door on 60s optimism but just a couple months before like just before altamont right was woodstock
2: mm-hmm. yeah
1: like they were only a few months apart from each other
2: yeah maybe it was a testing ground for their uh their acid um that they used or uh you know if it, there actually it actually there actually was a bad acid present at altamont um i read like a really hilarious description maybe it was on Arrowhead of like what it was like to take the, ba- the, the bad acid up. Oh, Woodstock. yeah. There is an
1: Arrowhead article about it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: yeah LSD Arrowhead, the infamous Woodstock brown acid.
2: Yeah. I remember that being like uh, an interesting. Oh, yeah. Actually, I think this is what I was thinking of. It's like in Mail Magazine. And it's like what it was like to take the brown acid. The brown acid was given me to me by an older woman. Well, to 18-year-old me, she seemed old. She was probably in her 40s. Anyway, she came up and gave me a loaf of bread because I was hungry, and some acid. It wasn't, though, what they called blotter acid, which is a piece of paper that you chew. It was a brown pill, and I took it later that morning. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday were all pretty mellow for me. I got stoned those three days, but I hadn't tripped at all. It was only when that woman gave me the acid that it turned into a fucking carnival. Right after I took it, Neil turned to me—it was just someone who was there with her—and goes, I'm gonna find a phone booth to call our moms and tell them that we're all right. The news was saying Woodstock was declared a disaster area. There wasn't enough food or water and that it was all mud. Basically, that it was a total clusterfuck. But Neil and I were having a wonderful time. So I just said, yeah, good idea. And can you have your mom call my mom, please? Neil sauntered off, and I'm in our usual spot waiting for Joe Cocker when the brown acid starts hitting. I thought Joe Cocker was the greatest thing I'd ever seen in my life, especially because it seemed like he wouldn't end his song with a little help from my friends until every single person at Woodstock stood up and gave him a standing ovation. Of course, my time was a little altered, but it felt like that lasted for six hours. At the end of his set, I was peaking, and it was awesome. I remember thinking, this is the strongest fucking ass I've ever taken in my life. But then, everything went black, like it was the middle of the night. I'm like, what the fuck is this? I thought I was hallucinating. Everybody was pointing up to the sky. Then they made an announcement about stopping the concert. This big storm was coming through. Hold on to your neighbor, they told us. But I don't have a neighbor, I thought. Neil was gone and I started to panic. My heart began beating and I had to go to the bathroom. Suddenly, I felt like I was surrounded by new people who weren't as friendly as the people there before. They were sort of looking down their nose at me like they were fresh in from the suburbs, well-dressed and all this. And there I was in some shorts and a t-shirt for three days. Hadn't brushed my teeth. I felt like a scumbag. The bread was gone, too, because I'd scarf it down in about five minutes. Who are all these new people, I thought? And why is everyone being so standoffish? Then their faces started, mel- started melting off and it wasn't fun anymore. <laughs> yeah. And wow. you know, then it was a monsoon. Uh, I guess this person made it out okay, but it does sound like a, a bit of a nightmare. Um, yeah, yeah it was messy. Blacking out for six hours and then pointing up at the sky. <laughs> everyone just pointing up at the sky. Uh, yeah. <laughs> A lot Um,
1: of people did say, like, yeah, it was, like, it was kind of messy and, like, miserable by the end. And, you know, the documentary just kind of washed all that away and made it this, like, wonderful, And who was this 40-year-old
2: woman giving, like, you know, an 18-year-old girl, like, a brown pill? Like, what? Like...
1: I don't know. I I really don't know. But... I Yeah, I, I do get the feeling that between that and the army being so friendly to like go supply shit to all these draft dodging fucking hippies that are like dropping acid, you know, and it's just like, yeah, no problem. We'll help. We always love to help. I'm like, what? the Do they? You know, I think they talked to one of the pilots that did it. They just thought it was like neat. Yeah. Clark mm-hmm. Stahl was a 23 year old warrant officer who had recently returned from NOM. He was hanging out at West Point and then got a, quote, pretty sweet gig. His commanding officers just came in and said, would you be available on Friday and during the weekend to provide medical aid and resupply for a rock festival? We kind of looked at each other and said, what the hell is a rock festival? Of course, we knew nothing about Woodstock. It was explained to us that there'd be a lot of big names and they didn't know how many people would end up showing up, but they expected it'd be quite a few more than they originally thought. And, of course, there were, like, 400,000. Yeah, so they already had a plan when one of the vendors' booths was burned down overnight, um, one of several instances of that happening. So they they came to the rescue and brought them all kinds of things to make it a functioning event. Yeah, six six to a dozen sorties over the course of the concert is what they did. Um, oh, this, uh, this is a good quote. I knew I found Okay. Yeah, the pilot said, quote, They would put people or stuff on board, and we would take it out there and drop it off without knowing exactly what it was, without really caring. It was all part of the effort to keep things safe and peaceful, he added. We knew they needed to get stuff in and out of there, but the main focus was on the health and safety aspect of it and making sure nobody had any injuries or medical issues, and if they did, they'd have the ability to treat them. Though Stahl was back in the States and no longer cruising over the jungles of Vietnam, in a way the mission was oddly familiar. (laughs) I flew medevacs in Vietnam, so I was used to the concept of medical evacuation and help from the sky, if you will. so my mindset was that this was just a kind of a continuation of what I'd done in Southeast Asia and helping those in need on the ground <laughs> so uh, i i uh, the don't ask questions just bring supplies uh, out
2: I think the most like characteristic thing about Woodstock was when like pete Townsend like uh like smacked abby hoffman with his guitar for getting up on stage and like indicting everybody for uh being at woodstock and not doing anything uh you know to like politically mobilize um
1: interesting
2: yes uh what abby hoffman was like uh yeah he was uh, he, what was he complaining about? Oh, yeah. He he got up on stage uh, while Pete Townsend of The Who, you know, The Who, who everyone invoked to say, like, oh, uh, well, people died at a Who concert. Are they sus, too? When the Travis well. Scott thing was happening. Yes, <laughs> they are. Yes, um, they are. Yeah. But as uh, Pete Townsend, you know, was tuning his guitar, Abby Hoffman, like, rushed the stage right after the song Pinball Wizard, the amazing song Pinball Wizard from The Who's Tommy sorry sorry fans uh it's like but anyway um so then he said i think this is a pile of shit uh that is abby Hoffman." while john sinclair rots in prison uh john sinclair was the uh the leader of the white panther party and the manager of the left-wing hard rock band mc5 who had been convicted and sentenced to nine years of prison because of marijuana possession uh, Townsend, angry that someone took the stage, yelled, fuck off, fuck off my fucking stage, hit him with his guitar and sent him (laughs) off stage again. Townsend then added, I can dig it. And after the song, do you think it's all right? He said, the next fucking person that Walker caught the stage is going to get fucking killed at which, uh, the crowd cheered.
1: (laughs) That sounds like Woodstock 99. Yeah. Wow. Uh, And then he said, you can
2: laugh. I mean it. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, John Lennon did a song about John, John Sinclair. Hmm. Yeah. So I guess, you know, he tried to make it political. I mean, Abby Hoffman's like really all over the place, but, you know, hey, when he's right, he's right. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, that that is the other thing that people, I, like I think even the Woodstock 99 documentary were saying is that, like, you know, I, I feel despite what the, the mythology that's been built around it, it was also emblematic of the limits of the hippie kind of alternative lifestyle culture thing. Like you can just see by the fact that the U S army had to come in and like save them, uh, that it is not a naturally sustainable, uh, lifestyle to like go and just kind of like messily camp somewhere in like huge numbers and do tons of acid and just like be, you know, Mm. um, are uh, yeah, kind of, (laughs) Like it's not not the best way to organize young people in like a disciplined fashion to uh to mobilize and do anything um to challenge power or anything like that you know Yeah, they or end up just, just like,
2: to, be like a test population for you know yeah what and was then, then there's like so illegal LSD
1: right, well i it was Very, illegal by then you know was it was it illegal yeah yeah cuz it, it was made illegal in i believe october of 1966 mm. so yeah it was um Cause the summer of love thing was like, like the acid test started before it was illegal. And then like the summer of love kind of happened in the few months after it was made illegal, but it was still everywhere. Cause like Elsley bear was, you know, making bathtubs full of it mm. and shit like that. Um, are but, you sure that
2: it was uh, I guess maybe it was at maybe like state level but uh, I think it was not until 68 that it was it was illegal but I guess that would have been before it was stuck anyway it was
1: still before well yeah maybe it was Ronald Reagan made it illegal in California in like October of 1966 mm-hmm. but that was definitely one turning point where it was made illegal but then everyone's tripping out so hard in this brown acid their minds are completely melting and then like, like uh, a Huey Army helicopter comes, but yeah. it's actually here to like bring you peanut butter sandwiches. Yay! And then you know, wow. Yeah, good vibes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> don't have to be mad really about the war. It. Just yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. We'll we'll yeah. probably circle back
2: to that. John Sinclair uh, played Obama's inauguration, really, performing a series of his poems, accompanied by a live band. Yeah.
1: Wow. Wow, mm-hmm. very radical. I wonder if Bill yeah, Ayers got it in there. Cool
2: feet, yippee, cool. <laughs> hey,
0: man. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you a personal question. How many people here really like in sync? Mm-hmm. Perfect. Perfect. How many people here ever woke up one morning and just decided it wasn't one of those days and you're gonna break some shit? Well, this is one of those Just one of those days. It's all about me, that she said bullshit. I think you better quit, it. that shit slip. You'll be leaving with a fat lip. It's all about me.
1: August 1st 2021 asked what do people think of the idea of the epistemological crisis slash collapse of consensus reality etc it's a pretty lib talking point nowadays but it seems hard to deny that something like that is happening i don't think it's about political polarization though more like the technology of social control getting way too effective
2: hmm. yeah what do you think? Yeah. I, I definitely, yeah, I, I agree very strongly with uh, walk-in stick in that. Um, yeah. I, I agree with both aspects of it where I feel like, you know, uh, one almost doesn't want to like feed into the kind of like a lib uh, sort of uh, panic over like the post-truth era. But I also feel like yeah. the, yeah, there is some kind of, I mean, this is something that's been going on for a while. Like, there's crisis representation, you know, uh, these uh, sort of uh, te- currents or tendencies. But I, I I definitely feel that, like, there is uh, a, a sort of widening breach between uh, people's different conceptions of, like, basic ontological and epistemological principles. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that I it think- is... Okay. Yeah, like, uh, and I, I agree that it is kind of a function of, uh, you know, uh, technologies like social control, like, uh, but almost like in a sort of a, a stochastic control, uh, you know, mechanism where it's like, you know, uh, control through chaos. Um,
1: well, yeah. yeah, I mean, this is really like, you know, going back to talking about like the net and the web, you yeah. know, I, I saw so, somebody say on Twitter recently that like, you know we talk about a web as if it's like a you know a, a multi-node kind of distributed network but no a web is yeah yeah as if, we the is, yeah,
4: we're, yeah, as if about, we're the yeah.
1: spider but no we're the prey like it's yes
2: <laughs> yeah we're we've been psyoped into taking the spiders pov on a web where like the vast majority of non well, all non-spider entities are not at home in webs
1: <laughs> exactly like like all users are the equivalent of a fly trapped in the web (laughs) Um, and like Silicon Valley is the spider. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, yeah, the technologies of social control, but I feel like that's almost a redundant phrase. Like it's just like, because the technology, well, it's like it truly exists, I think to like manage social control. Um, Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I won't pick. I won't pick any bones with that. It is the technology of social control. Though, well, it's sold to us as technology for different purposes. You know,
3: mm-hmm.
1: like yeah. to connect people or to make your work more efficient or to you Use know yourself.
2: expose. Your, yeah,
1: yeah, all kinds of all every reason they give for why the technology exists, but like under the hood, it's yeah. custom car commando social control like. Mm-hmm. Purring all the way down you know yeah um Definitely. i don't know with consensus it's even happening in like such a like i feel that the problem with the lib kind of version of that of like people have information silos where they only you know mm-hmm. watch fox news or they you know yeah uh the problem with that is it almost like it understates like the depth uh, of the problem because I feel like things are so micro yes. sliced and diced now. And
2: libs are also like a huge victim of it, I think. And yeah, yes, I don't are think so they acknowledge great. that enough. Yes, exactly. And things are so micro sliced. Yeah. It's not just like, yeah, it's not about political polarization in the sense of like there being two poles, even though I won't necessarily dispute that there are, But the more, like, alarming thing is, yeah, like, the fractalization of all these, like, sort of micro camps. Like, that's what really, I mean, I think that it is, like, uh, a, a phenomenon that, like, the rift between, like, the two poles politically, like, in the United States, I can definitely speak to, like, has become very profound where, like, there's no, like, the common ground is, like, really, I mean... Obviously, it's not totally unprecedented uh, that there's been this uh, a- element of polarization uh, and a rift between these two factions, these two general uh, factions, you know, really like the sort of uh, southern block and like the cowboys Northern and Yankees. States. Yeah, Cowboys and Yankees. Yeah. Um, Whatever you want to
1: say about that, that uh, binary, like it does describe the cultures of the two political parties at this point, I would say. Right. Yes. Like that's definitely what they kind of embody publicly to themselves. Mm -hmm. Like you got Yankee Democrats and Republican Cowboys.
2: Yes. And And, yeah. But in between people
1: are much more like micro sliced and diced even than that. And on the
2: extremes as well, like all across, like everyone is like in their own little weird encampment. And like some, you know, I think uh, it's kind of like... uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's like uh, you know, just like this hyper like uh, is sort of a uh, fertile ground for like the development of like these weird like uh, I think of the negative forty eight thing, you know, like there's always what been negative like things 48? like that. You know, the guy, he was, like, the guy who led all those people to Dallas and was just, like, saying things. Like, oh, you that know, guy. Okay. The yeah, JF, 185. The Jr. is going to Yeah, come like, back. 185. Christ the King, 185. <laughs> like, you know, Trump, 185, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. Or Lisa uh,
1: Kleepier, you know, like, yes. I am, like, God is 7 seven eleven.
2: like. Yeah. And, you know. like, though, like you know, just, like, I don't know if they actually do hate each other, but, like, those two people could, like, just hate each other deeply over, like, the intense, yeah. like, difference, you know, of opinion that they oh, have yeah, about some, yeah. like, thing that doesn't even correspond in any way to what the average person recognizes as reality. And, like, oh, there have always been definitely. things like that, you know, like, Millerites and things, you know, like, millenarian groups, but I think that the, yeah, you know, the internet is accelerating it. Mm-hmm. Have, you know without well doubt. even
1: even if you just take kind of like the so-called like radical left in the united states like how many different factions and sects and the subdivisions like could you possibly break that into because i could probably like go for an hour and just like list yeah. like different factions like the you know like the uh you know it's like are you a like a uh, like a dirtbaggist chapoist, are you (laughs) a Twitch? Are you a like a Hassan Pikerist, like Twitchist? Are you Yeah, are
2: you a Twitchist? Yeah. Yeah. Are
1: you a like a vouchist? Are you now it's become like uh kind of embodied by these different like influencer personalities, but I'm just thinking of like that one thing that kind of went unintentionally viral in the last I think in the last week before we recorded this of that uh youtube streamer that was talking about like the problem of left-wing conspiracy theorizing and like that's a huge fault line that we are kind of on the precipice of and engage with all the time but people that like aren't as plugged in to like particularly that i online kind of like discourse might have no idea that there's like beefs between like the twitch streamer people that call themselves socialist and like the critical paranoid people mm-hmm. who might call themselves socialists that are talking about like subliminal jihad. And uh, there might be like deep epistemic uh, epistemological disputes between these groups, even when they claim to sort of be kind of like, you know, negative 48 and like Lisa Clapier getting into a fight, like from a distance they might just look like bad shit, like right wing maniacs. But
4: mm-hmm. then when
1: you zoom in, it's like nobody can really kind of unite into I don't know, like, it, it seems very difficult for, like, a mass movement to sort of cohere, and I don't know, at the same time, like, like, political processes is always involved, like, debating and fighting other people, and, you know, that that was going on long before the internet, mm-hmm. but I feel like the internet adds these uh, yeah. dynamics that
2: mm-hmm. well, just
1: think- end up into, like, yeah, like, pissing contests, and like, fights. Yeah, and fights I think that and-
2: it... I mean, it facilitates like the movement of like these like memes, you know, and these sort of like information bites that like infect people (laughs) like it just, you know, and I'm sure that that is like a phenomenon before, but I don't think that anyone would deny that like the internet like definitely like lubricates like this, this process, like, you know, for like the example that you gave, like, you know, people on the left who would be like, uh, like sort of denouncing the idea of conspiracy uh, theory, or uh, talking about a conspiracy as something that is like fundamentally false. Like conspiracy as a synonym for false. Yeah. Uh, when you know, which of course you know, but that like it could present a problem to someone, uh, to to people because they want to talk about conspiracies, which happen all the time, you know, and are like a tested a historical fact. So this could lead to like you know a huge sort of failure. You know, yeah, and it is very much uh epistemic or really like based on uh premises. Like they're operating from really a different definition of conspiracy, which means like crazy thing. But it's like so deeply embedded through like these like weird uh little like uh no- nomoy or gnomes that uh gnomes in the sense of you know like received wisdom or these Memetic little kind gnomes. of like axioms yeah that they uh just like repeat you know like the idea like uh Oh, c- people believe in conspiracy theories because it's comforting. Something that if you think about that for like two seconds just collapses completely. Week. Yeah, but people just say that like without really examining it, because if you think about it for a second, it doesn't make any sense. It's like, one of the
1: most. It's one of the more triggering arguments that people throw at you. Is it doesn't like? Yeah. Do you really think this is more comforting that like there are like high level networks of like intelligence backed like A a great one that I saw
2: recently was that like people don't want to believe that like Lee Harvey Oswald shot JFK because he he had a family. (laughs) And that means he could be anyone. And it's like literally everybody has a family. (laughs) You know, or I guess, he you know, there's some people who are the orphans, Soviet Union
1: and then but, redefected know. to America. Like, that's not anybody, right? It's just like, like, like hanging out with white Russian experts. Yeah, in and like, uh, Ted Kaczynski
2: was an academic. Uh, <laughs> so, like, they're, you know, it's like, oh, right. Yeah, people just do not want to believe that academics could do anything wrong. And that's why they believe in conspiracies because they're too, they're just too attached to the reputation of academics. It's like, that's really defines the community of conspiracy theorists just it's academic fans. It's very stupid especially um, to
1: bring it up in a left context because like I, I don't know unless you're totally hewing to like the Warren Commission like he was a lone nut who was unstable and wanted to be famous or something like that like it, it you kind of are left with like you have to kind of employ a different kind of conspiracy theory if you think like Oswald really did it and then maybe he was working for a communist country to do it which yes. is like always like the fake conspiracy thing they were like pretending to cover up to like save the world because they were so selfless you know it's like if they had to tell somebody that they were covering it up they'd be like look like like castro did it but we can't start world war three you know and like wow that's like so responsible of them but you know like they would almost have to do that and then as somebody who is, like, like, speaking for myself, who is, like, sympathetic to Marxism and even, like, 20th century, Mar- you know, Marxist countries, um, then wouldn't that be more upsetting to, like, open up that can of worms that, like, one of the most, like, horrific crimes against, like, a president who maybe... Despite what Chomsky said, like, wasn't like that bad and maybe wanted to end the Cold War, Mm. he was snuffed out by like the evil, conniving commies. Like, they actually are as evil as like McCarthy said they were. And then wouldn't I have to, like, or I'd have to embrace it and be like, it was based like JFK was bourgeois, like he deserved to die, which is stupid uh, because it didn't have like really a positive result in terms of like East West relations. You know what I mean? It's just like, like, it's at a certain point. Unless you want to just accept literally everything that the media and the government and the series like people say,
2: even if you believe that everything that they say, like you just said, you know, even if you believe like their insinuation of like a communist conspiracy, or even if you believe like everything that I mean, the media doesn't really align on everything because they cleave to this sort of larger phenomenon of like this sort of uh binary political polarization where like it's very funny, like uh, you know, sort of uh. That both sides maybe i mean i guess really it's more the sort of right wing that has this uh very prominent theme in in their rhetoric about being sort of like heterodox or working against like the elites or the establishment in some way yeah. you know um and i guess you know the sort of liberal uh media doesn't go into that uh it doesn't doesn't hit that as hard i guess uh I, I guess anymore. maybe it's for like a cultural level yeah i mean the left does the left does but not yeah. like mad. But I mean, like liberals. Like, Tucker in like the 2000s. will like inveigh against elites, which is just like truly laughable. But this idea of like yeah. heterodoxy—really, that we have like a you know two pillars of you know two two different orthodoxies. But by virtue of that, like you know they they there's different uh, ideas. But like you know one orthodoxy, for instance, the right wing, they believe in. They believe January sixth, you know, maybe was like cooked up by the federal government, but. On the other side, like, they believe that, like, Russia, you know, like, uh, subverted, like, the election in 2016, like, in a very meaningful way, like, actually just straight up stole it. Both of those are conspiracies. So, like, even if you are just going by mainstream media narratives, like, you know, those are... Conspiracies, like even, you know, there's tons of things that are just like historically attested conspiracies that were denied until they were like acknowledged, yeah. you know, of an incredibly uh grand scale and uh sinister portent. But like, you know, it's really as I was saying, like there's different there's a new definition of conspiracy where like uh you know, part of the muddying of the waters of this is sort of the perpetuation of the idea that a conspiracy is something that is that crazy people believe as a possibility right. and normal delusional... people with a, a materialist sense of the world don't, which is why the term parapolitics has become like in a way necessary, but parapolitics, uh, I mean, in a way like, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of a test to the gap. that still exists because, you know, we had to call it para like, uh, like paranormal adjacent. Yeah, or, or exactly. Gap, or like right. aside from the normal, aside from, politics or uh that's true because if i really had my
1: druthers i would just call it politics like that yes. there is no separation between talking about conspiracy uh in history and talking about like political history like they yes. these are two things that always like one is a feature of the other like, conspiracy is a feature of like wielding and gaining and losing political power and like managing power
2: yes really and- it's a para a para discourse of politics but it's not about para, any kind of like you know anything that is separate from ordinary politics like technically mm-hmm. speaking you know the dis the mainstream it's different from the mainstream discourse that's what makes it para but it's not yeah, yeah uh different from politics itself. And so except, you know, when like ontological differences do come into play in the way that we do talk about some some topics in the show, like, uh, you know, if there's any kind of gin involved, then in that sense, perhaps there could be parapolitics. But because that, you know, has different sort of ontological framing that changes politics entirely. But, uh, you know, that aside, yeah. most things like JFK, that's not parapolitical. It's simply political but anyway political. uh yeah. Yeah, yeah but that's but we have to say that because we can't say that there was a conspiracy even though it's a perfectly functional word because conspiracy has come to mean you know insane through like uh these you know uh
1: illogical
2: psyops yeah illogical but yeah Occam's um, razor yeah yeah yes exactly <laughs> occam's razor uh but i do think i i
1: think the sooner that everybody can realize that like we are all conspiracy theorists now like the maybe this not that will be insane. But like, I think even more insane is people that are still in denial that they
3: <clears throat>
1: are trafficking or entertaining conspiracy theories. Like, you know, that like Russia stole the 2016 election. Like people really believe that and still do. And I'm sure some people believe that Russia like had a very big hand in like January 6th, you know, and other thing. And then on the other side, there's all these, you know, pretty out there, conspiracy theories too but it's like everybody's kind of doing it one way or another unless you're choosing to only believe like the snopes verified you know zero pinocchios like officially approved truth which I'm sorry, like, you shouldn't be running around trusting motherfuckers like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I mean, you, I'm, I don't have like a bad time if you do that.
2: every day, but I feel like even they must like acknowledge some like, you know, or say certain dubious conspiracies are true. I mean, Snopes is. Yeah, certainly but you know not what I impartial. mean, like, this, like, unless yeah.
1: somebody like there, there's a, a a like a no, you would comma, have to literally believe it didn't actually happen article. And that's the only thing they trust.
2: In, yeah in order to like actually not believe in conspiracies you would have to have like a totally incoherent idea of the world like you would yes. have to not like how was julius caesar assassinated
1: <laughs> like you would have to become a conspiracy you know, theorist in the exactly. way they mean it to basically uh, accommodate that worldview like to yeah make it makes sense it so would have to like,
2: be just like everything like people don't actually ha- yeah i yeah i really can't even on the spot i can't imagine a world where there would be no such thing as a conspiracy <laughs> like that would like cohere in any way like or make any kind of sense like what would ha- yeah it almost would seem like there would have to be some kind of like other force that was capable of conspiring if human beings weren't and didn't. But then you're back yeah. then
1: you're basically a gin theory. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> then, yeah
2: then you're basically a gin theory or so, like reptoids or something like uh so, or you know worm like parasites, you know, controlling people. Yeah,
1: so but, don't drive yourself mad because you think I don't want to be one of those delus that that is the one thing that in this insane hellish you know uh trajectory of society that does feel a little nicer than maybe even like Like five years ago or 10 years ago is I feel the stigma uh, just in like interpersonal day-to-day reactions like uh, interactions like the stigma around saying uh oh I talk about conspiracy theories there you I feel like there really was a like high cost as there was with many things where like the vibes have shifted where like you would be looked at as like ew like what that's that's crazy like ew I'm not into that you know what I mean yeah well, are uh, really still the not taken seriously like a,
2: you know, there's a panic. there's a new sort of moral panic happening around there's a the double level moral panic where like there is a moral panic around like conspiracies that I think is happening again, but you know, like it's not entirely unwarranted. um you know, I think that some of it is uh a you know, and like it can be excessive or there can be targets that, uh, you know, are the wrong targets or are not implicated in the way that some believe them to be or something like that. You know, like uh panic is generally as we, yeah, you know, we recently talked about pan, you know, panic is generally a bad thing. Uh, you know, Definitely. like, uh, you, like you never, no one ever wants to really be, to be panicked. So like, you can totally panic about like, you know, if there's a fire in your house, there's a reason like, you know, there's a legitimate cause for panic, but panicking doesn't help you know you want to like calmly leave right so i do think that there is a like a panic happening about like the, some uh things that are like uh real you know that have a real basis to them like for instance like the uh embedment of like sex trafficking uh in our government or something like that like the you know yeah. the high profile uh, pedophiles uh, via like that type of thing you know like we see this discourse like you know uh becoming like uh, deeply politicized like in certain quarters and then i also think that there's a like counter moral panic about the problem of conspiracy like people believing in conspiracies or you know believe you know believing that there's pedophiles in the government but that is true. Like, so it becomes like a horrible vice. Yeah, exactly. This um, is
1: alarming. We need to learn how to control people better. So they don't yeah. believe like these insane things like that, you know, people in the government yeah. knew about nine eleven Um, and stuff like right. that, you know,
2: and like people who believe like, you know, uh, pe- like some of the beliefs of people who like truly go nuts and like hurt innocent people might like be valid if not mainstream. Like, you know, someone who's like truly insane might believe like in, I don't know that like, uh, Martin Luther King, you know, was killed by the FBI, or you know, and yeah. that does, that doesn't mean that that belief is like not allowed in the public discourse, but that is what the response ends up being, like to that person, like the you know their insanity, reaching out in all sorts of directions, including like you know maybe even even violence or you know whatever, which you know obviously uh, here on the on the conspiracy podcast we think is like to extent an extent deliberate, you know, or at least framed deliberately, but. Anyway, like, like uh, the
1: PizzaGate shooter, like um, this, like oh yeah, weirdo perhaps. goes and like um, shoots a bullet hole in the wall, and <laughs> Ketandi, yeah uh, exactly. Jackson Brown like yeah. throws him in jail, and then gets a Supreme Court seat. Mm. No, I'm not, <laughs> um, I'm not saying that's why she got it, but. Right.
2: Well, like, you know, uh, the, like the whole thing about like, she's been soft on like sex criminals or whatever. Like they I don't did know
1: go how, in this legitimate. weird pizza gate direction. Yeah. Um, which, you know, they I stopped don't know short how. of like critical support for like the, the comet ping pong shooter. <laughs> but
2: yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah and i i mean i don't know like i haven't really looked into like how legitimate that was it didn't seem to be like uh really like a real you know they were bringing up all sorts of like bullshit like she defended guantanamo detainees or whatever like uh good but you know i mean i'm i'm sure she sucks in the way that like well
1: she's married to a a boston brahmin
2: Mm, and
1: and also by marriage she is uh paul ryan's like (laughs) sister-in-law
2: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure that she's like not like a radical uh, leftist or anything, or like you know, I'm, like no, she's of course not. like yeah, I'm sure she's like very like uh, milk toast and like probably like barely like well, well, like that that's a good all, example like, actually
1: of you know, kind of like bringing up this like like, kind of hinting at this, like, pizza y thing, but in, like, a very kind of disingenuous, like, half-assed sort of way at the exact yeah, moment that when my, you might like, you like, like I score really a couple political points.
2: Yeah, or, like, is there even anything to that? Like, I don't know. Like, you know, I, I like, the, it, has she been, like, really soft on, like, you know, sex offenders, like, I uh, mean, like,
3: like
1: it, it was, it was a matter of degrees. I think like, I don't know enough about, you know, the inside baseball of like federal judges and like their sentencing guidelines, but it seemed to be that like, okay, maybe she gave like slightly softer sentences to like some sex offenders. And, you know, the logic being that like, if you if you prosecuted these people according to say like 1970s laws where people be busted with like magazines or something like mm-hmm. you stack the kind of the sentence you know in accordance with how much material they had but now since everyone's on the all these sickos are on the internet and they might have like a gigabyte of like you know child sexual content but like does that mean then you should like sentence them to like a thousand years because they have like 50, 500 times more content than the guy in the seventies who had magazines. So she was mm-hmm. advocating for like, well, and then they were like, Oh, so you're saying like, we shouldn't punish it. Cause it's more available. You know, that's how like Alex Jones interpreted it. Um, mm-hmm. but I think it's like, it, yeah, it seems like a, you know, they're, they're reaching, they're doing their thing. And, mm-hmm. but they're definitely tapping into they're kind of like, yeah. if you're like a kind of MAGA or like QAnon adjacent type person oh, or yeah. you've like been pizza gate pilled you're reading between the lines of kind of what they're they're just all they got to do is like put this content out there and then other influencers in the right-wing media sphere are going to like run with it and make all these inferences and yes. but still you're not going to really get to the bottom of any and you know, really not like actually expose anything
2: i mean it's tied to the fact that like you know there has been like a huge like shift in uh, a huge cultural shift like uh, where you know uh like homosexuality like is no longer seen as you know being like it like you know obama was against gay marriage and things like that you know like uh yeah. and so the only way that these people can like you know and that's like what a lot of the like anti woke people you know we see these laws being passed now where like you know it is very bizarre where it's like you know it Uh, They're like, oh, we need family autonomy, family autonomy. And like, yeah, you know, some of the things like I think that like there's in some cases like, you know, they might have a point, like especially like uh, the way they represent things or believe things are like, you know, little kids being talked to about like, you know, very adult, like sexual subjects. Like, obviously, that's like wrong uh, or like, you know, unnecessary. But like, you know, it's very weird because they're very much about like parental autonomy. But also they're like, you know, if you're kid is trans like you're going to be investigated for child abuse or whatever like got you know they, they can't really like build up the same level of popular support like that that you know to sort of walk back some of the enfranchisement that like lgbt people have received so the, like a one way of approaching that is sort of characterizing things that uh like sug- like you know there's like books now like for young kids that like mention uh, people having like two dads. Like I remember it was on Arthur or whatever. So what they want to do basically is to like say that that is fundamentally like bringing up sex. Like doesn't seem to like logically really be the case. Like, because you know, like if you represent a mom and dad, is that bringing up heterosexual sex? Like, you know, it's a, a bit like of a no a i don't think area, yes yeah I think the, that's that like doesn't strike where, me as
1: like inherently sexual at all yeah um, and i think that's kind of
2: where they're going with it because i think that you know they feel that even among maybe even among like republicans you know they don't like like against like a gayness itself or uh being lgbt itself like people uh, you know aren't going to get outraged about that but about like wokeness you know like uh and grooming they yeah, will. the grooming, and that's thing. like what yeah. they're trying to you know well but i think that's like it's think because... what a lot of it has to do with which is you know like pretty like f- uh fucked up and like ultimately like will really end up like helping real like actual pedophiles to hide because like you know no one's a lot like well, I mean, everyone's some a pedogroomer nobody is some people will be fooled but i think that on the whole people won't be fooled and it will like shitcoat like you know any concern about like actual grooming which is like a rampant problem in a lot of different institutions
1: yeah yeah i mean i think it it's getting back to the the core of this question it's like hard to even tell i haven't paid super close attention to that discourse in florida but it's like it's it's like very hard to like unpack without i guess sitting down and reading the entire bill like who's who's bullshitting here like and who's actually accurately representing like what is that can we just like like define clearly what is this bill because like I'm hearing on the right wingers are saying it's got all this crazy shit in it which like some of it some of it like if literally true would be like nah, I can see why you wouldn't want to like teach it like a second grader that you know like mm-hmm. talking about I don't know. Uh, like things Alex Jones would scream about about like they got dildos in kindergarten class
4: <laughs> and they're putting on
1: condoms and teaching them how to put them in their butts I'm sorry <laughs> folks. Like, I know this is disgusting but this is what the sick mm-hmm. people are doing yeah, right. you know and mm-hmm. like in their mind it's like the blue haired like TikTok tock right like, who's, like they them take like your, teacher take your is kids away
2: from the parents say like come to school kids and like put on your dress and now you're you know you at home you're Kyle but here you're Kelly like hey. yeah they're
1: going to secretly you know, like yeah. make your kid trans and like not tell you about it. And which yes. is like, if they are doing that, that is a little, I would say that that's maybe like a little bit like, I don't think you want to like hide it from like the parents. That seems a little bit inappropriate. But at the same time, are they really doing that? Like,
2: or is yeah. this like
1: a big fever dream that like that's going to happen?
2: I think that there's a lot of, like, you know, uh, like, fear, uh, sort of, like, delusions, like, uh, occurring. I mean, like, again, like, in most cases, there usually is, like, uh, an example that one could adduce that would be, like, something that would be objectionable. But, like, I don't think that, like, it's truly, like, the, the norm or that, like, you know, most of the things that are being represented as, like, outrageous are outrageous to the extent that they are or like that there's really like you know i think that you know it kind of like blends together like you know oh you know if like a a 16 year old or a 17 year old is like trans among her friends or whatever uh, or something like that and then like somehow it gets conflated in the conversation and it becomes like oh you know the teachers are like putting your like you know three-year-old in a dress and telling them they're a girl like you know and trying to make them trans or whatever you know like i don't yeah. think that that is like a real like f- phenomenon, you know, or like no, uh, though
1: and- I, it also maybe there are certain things, like probably not that extreme, but maybe certain things are happening in like certain school districts around the country. But there are certain school districts where parents are like all about that shit and like want to like their kids to be like su- taught to be super progressive and stuff. Like, I mean, yes. if you think of like Portland or like a lot of schools in LA, like or San Francisco like they so it's like not so much in their case like maybe they're feeling pressure from the parents in like these school districts to like do more like progressive things and like more fully like read them like the Ruth Bader Ginsburg like children's book yeah exactly teach them that Kamala Harris is like a girl boss down
2: to like the fundamental like epistemological problem like you know in uh like a uh you know, like there's like, you know, and an axiological problem as well. Like, yeah, because like definitely in some like communities in America, like it, you know, there is like maybe a certain like uh, moral valence to being like, I mean, we know that this is true. Like there's definitely a moral valence to uh, being gay or something, you know, like it, uh, it's like good. Oh yeah. yeah. And it's very different from like, Uh, even when like,
1: I think we were in high school. It's like very different. Like that has changed. I mean, when I was
2: in high school, like, definitely it was not considered to be or well at least uh, i mean i think that there were a lot of people in my school who like you know and i i, I was definitely like you know uh like pro like uh, gay rights and everything but uh definitely like i you know i admit like i still called everything bad gay like you know as everyone did you know which yeah in is, the uh, early 2000s everybody yes. did that um, like yeah <laughs>
1: without fail Um, and they and they really i mean they didn't mean it though of course that's like that's no excuse but it really did just yeah like that it just had a vibe i feel like even like i'm not gonna say even gay people would say it because who cares but like you know
2: (laughs) well yeah you know what i mean like uh, like
1: it's just things have changed a lot um yeah but my
2: point is that like yeah you know like it's uh you know, like, I think that for some, especially, like, for people, like, who are themselves maybe not gay, like, there is, like, sort of, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I think that there's maybe, like, there's a little bit of an anxiety about it, even, like, in the light of this kind of, like, polarization or epistemological crisis, you know, like, uh, and it is, like, the the social technology or the technology of social control kind of replicating itself through the behavior of people because the more, like, we want to, like, control our, you know, our children, right? Like, we want to make sure that our kids like don't become like the the mass shooters and the Nazis that they become like you know slay queens you know like uh and they don't yeah. you know or like good so, allies or something uh, like, like that. exactly like that's the, the ultimate nightmare and the on the other side it's the exact same thing like you don't want your kid to be the blue hair sjw you want them to be kyle rittenhouse <laughs> you know like uh like everyone is, like, today
1: kind very, of does want to indoctrinate their kid there's just oh a and everyone always has over, wanted to
2: indoctrinate their kids yeah. and like it's really you know they're saying now it's child abuse to say that like you know it's good to be gay from their point of view like it is but like You know, and the people who are like, how dare you call that child abuse, they would consider it like, you know, I mean, a lot of this, maybe not the exact same people, but I don't know, a lot of people maybe believe in their hearts it's child abuse to teach a kid about hell or teach them that God is real. Right. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So a lot of people would.
1: Oh, yeah. So go on Reddit. You'll you'll see. Yeah, exactly. Um, So Or, you know, like like, you know, brainwashing like little young pioneers in communist countries to like worship Lenin and like the communist system, you know, And, and it's like, well, what did American kids in school do in the 50s? Did they all pledge allegiance to the flag every morning? And then get like psychologically scarred by like doing duck and cover drills and then be taught about how like free market economics, is the greatest thing ever. And like the founding fathers all in slaves, but that was chill. And you know what I mean? Like
2: yeah, every exactly. country, that, like, like you got, know, you got, the- y- y- the Native Americans peacefully gave up all of their land, and yeah. they, you know, <laughs> exactly. welcomed us here. And now they are happy living on a reservation and just, you know, drinking alcohol and gambling. They're which, the things they've always loved. Yeah. Um, so I
1: mean, it's not like you know the education policy is like all decided in no. like some smoke-filled room somewhere, but uh, it's a little more distributed than that, and it does vary state to state. But at the same time, it's always being shaped. Like to like yes. you want like the goal is to indoctrinate kids um it's yes. just like with good values like but the, yeah and like but indoctrinate just means <laughs>
2: teach indoctrinate literally means like like the same root as doctor you know like it means like to put doctrine like impart doctrine to someone yeah exactly and it sounds so scary yeah, but it's, you know, like, uh, yeah, it's like, it, seems, it sounds like injecting or something, you know, like, uh-huh. uh, but what I've kind of been circling around is I think like the big problem is that like people like there's no reciprocity, like that's what people can't see. Like it comes back to like the Russia thing, you know, like people can't see like how like the point of view of like from the point of view of Russia, like it's laughable for the United States to be like, how dare you? You know, because it's just, like, a standard of behavior that, like, has been established by the United States. Exactly. It's hypocritical. And, like, you know, I think that people on, like, the, you know, liberal left, uh, as it's continually being called, like, uh, they can't see, like, you know, the, like, that argument. They can't, like, they can't see, like, uh, the, or, like, even open themselves at all to like the you know worldview of like the of you know the the other side or like of others and that like kind of like epistemological like flexibility is like what i feel like is like the like the only solution like the you know it's kind of like a like necessity of like the like fucked up like uh mind war uh battlefield that we like all you know, technological hellscape that we all like exist on. Like it's, you know, you can't like I think that maybe at times in the like at times in the past I think that it was easier to have like this kind of like uh maybe epistemological homogeny within like certain groups. But like now yeah. like that the, the world has become smaller, as they say. And I think that that type of thing, like you know that's why i'm always like saying like explain to me why you like love bath med explain to me like why you know it's good to worship pan or something because yeah. like you know that's what needs to like you know not to sound like someone's like debate me that's not what i'm what I'm advocating at all and i think that's like actually part of the problem in many ways but like i think that you know that's the only way that like we're gonna be able to live with each other is being able to like you know the uh To be like quote unquote tolerant of like intolerance, uh, you know, in some in some way, Uh, I don't know, like, or things that are are abhorrent to us, like in a way that perhaps like is relatively new. Yeah, that causes us to causes us to stretch a little bit, like the the bones of our respective beliefs, and like find a way to like live those beliefs while like allowing others to live there basically liberalism no but i you know like uh <laughs> Libertarian but i think that utopia no but i think liberalism is like itself like that's the problem with like liberalism and secularity like it is itself like you know the ultimate the epitome of that where it creates like a false empty space or like a vacuum of ideology where no ideology you know can exist but mm-hmm. you know it's always present it's uh, you know there is no such thing as like a vacuum or like, you know, the absence of, uh, belief or the absence of, uh, ideology or, or of like, you know, religion, you can't have that, you know, like, uh, the, it's always like sort of, uh, lurking in the background. So I think that that is like, that's like the acknowledgement that need, like the sort of, uh, the, the marketplace of ideas, like, you know, is not, it can never be neutral. So we need to find a way to like get around that problem. But I don't know. We don't have to fucking figure out solutions. I don't know the solutions. But anyway, that's how I understand I don't the either. problem. <laughs> yeah, I don't look to us for solutions to anything because I certainly don't have them and I don't want to be responsible for my solutions being bad. But I don't know. Yeah, we have to like get away from <laughs> the sure idea enough. of like objectivity and neutrality. My feeling is, you know, take it or leave it. Yeah. We had to get yeah. away from this idea of objectivity or neutrality or avoidage of ideology or kind of like an empty, idealized space and realize that you know, our beliefs in many ways, like are incommensurable on some points, but figure out a way to maintain flexibility so that we don't have to necessarily compromise our own beliefs, but like, you know, we don't have to compromise others either so that we can like live with each other and not yes. like strangle each other to death. I don't know. Engage
1: like, in a dialectical process. So something. Yeah. I
2: don't know. Um, but
1: or whatever. Uh, yeah.
4: Yeah i told you some secrets would you say i'm unreal i could easily love you if you just let me feel i can't play forever the games i've outgrown but just still enchanted sky machines take all the Needing to touch you is so hard to restrain, just waiting for the time. Good, maybe.
1: Four now. You want to read that? Yeah,
2: that's fine. Uh, have you come across Judy... Oh, sorry. Molly Ringwald asks... Are you sure it's not Mommy Ringwald or she goes by Molly Ringwald? now? I
1: think she's switched a couple times, maybe. Yeah, I
2: don't know. But maybe I'm thinking of someone else. Okay. Molly Ringwald asks uh, in August. Uh, August 6th, 2021. Have you come across Judy Sill at all in your survey of Laurel Canyon? She was IRRC, if I recall correctly, the first artist signed to Asylum. This Rolling Stone article has a lot of interesting tidbits. She mentions how a guy at her private reform school ran guns to Cuba. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I think you like uh, you know, we listening to some Judy Sill that you sent me. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 I went on a little it. journey. Yeah. Oh, I
1: yeah. went on a little sonic journey last I like night the this vigilante. morning. Yeah. Uh, the Vigilante is good. Um, yeah. really all of her songs are pretty fantastic. I think so. Um mm-hmm. yeah, Judy Sill's really interesting. She sort of didn't come up in it's actually very bizarre that she didn't really come up in weird scenes inside the canyon at all, because mm-hmm. she was, uh, as Molly Ringwald said, the first client, uh, the first person to be signed by young David Geffen, the Godfather of like L.A. hippie country rock, you know, yes. in the 1970s, the 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 towering uh, Napoleon of chill 70s vibes etc and she is a very interesting and kind of tragic life story but yeah we hadn't really gotten into it yet um even though she was kind of intersecting with all these other people i think we talked about both in the weird scenes episode and in the eagles episodes because they were on the same level they were or, or on the same label they were on asylum but unlike you know the eagles or Joni mitchell or crosby stills nash and young she Recorded two albums, and then kind of like f- kind of fell off like in the mid to late seventies, and then died in mm-hmm. I believe nineteen seventy nine. Let me see exactly what she died. So she had she had a lot of problems with the drugs. Um, she's kind of very reminiscent of like Kate Bush in a lot of ways. We talked about Kate Bush in another Q and A episode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like her. Uh, she's, like, a singer-songwriter who has, like, a very unique, like, voice. Um, and her lyrics are, like, very complex and very spiritual and, like, allegorical. And you get a lot of, like, Gurdjieffian kind of, like, Jungian vibes. Uh, I think mm-hmm. she was very into Carl Jung. And she was, like, a voracious reader. Yeah, so she had songs like Jesus Was a Crossmaker, uh, The Phoenix, I'm probably uh, The Donor. Um, yeah, she had her, her, second album was Heart Food in 1973. She didn't sell very well, you know, uh, when she released these albums and, oh, she got, she was into Theosophy. I see. Wow. She called Geffen a homophobic slur on stage mm. in around the time of, uh, yeah, after her second album, Heart Food, she kind of broke off from Geffen in Asylum Sill's friends have said that she lacked the resilience to cope with poor album sales and bad reviews of her work and that she was dropped after she refused to perform as an opening act, a task she disliked. According to another source, Geffen pulled support for Heart Food and refused to release any more of her records after Sill, frustrated over what she perceived as his lack of support for her career, publicly referred to him by using a homophobic slur. She either called Geffen uh, fat F word on stage (laughs) or referred to his uh, faggoty pink shoes. Um, yeah. Hmm. So he didn't like that. I see. So, hmm. Interesting. And uh, she was going to record in a third album at Michael Nesmith's studios. Um, he was one of the monkeys and she, but she was abusing drugs again. I think she might've gotten in like a, a car accident that like fucked her spine up. She got into theosophy she worked as a cartoonist at an LA no, agency. She's theosophy,
2: of course. I mean, who isn't?
1: I know, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, she's definitely very much um, like into that like woo woo Laurel Canyon yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, she, uh, let's see. Oh, she was affiliated with the Self Realization Fellowship in Pacific Palisades. Mm-hmm. So I she think,
2: is like the iconic like '70s woman, like in appearance. Like she, she really is almost is like like, like,
1: a like a proto Stevie Nicks. Um, yeah, and. Yeah, I think the other one was Laura Nyro, who was another woman who was one of the first Geffen people um, to be mm-hmm. signed and kind of has like a somewhat similar vibe, like very kind of folksy, a little bit witchy, like singer songwriter. It's interesting, like he had these two artists and then um, but then it was really it wasn't until like Joni Mitchell that like she really caught fire. Yes. Okay. Yeah. He was, he represented her as an age, as a, as Nairo's agent. But anyways, yeah. Judy Sill, she Mm. really is a quintessential uh, witchy woman.
2: Was she a, uh, was she she a Muslim eventually? Uh, I Uh mean, it seems like she married a Tunisian mime. Oh, Laura Nairo? But but maybe, uh, no, uh, Judy Sill. Um, yeah, not Laura Uh, Naira. Oh, uh,
1: Judy Sill married the, um, uh, Charlie Chaplin impersonator.
2: Yes, right? Samir Ben Talib Kamoun. I, mean, I guess he could have been a Christian or he could have not cared about whether she became Muslim. But Yeah, um, that was
1: uh, shortly before her death, I guess, after a series of car accidents and failed surgery for a painful back injury. She struggled with the drug addiction and dropped out of the music scene. She died of a drug overdose or acute cocaine and codeine intoxication on November 23rd, 1979 at her apartment on Morrison Street in North Hollywood. The, the L.A. coroner ruled her death a suicide taking into account a note found near her body. But some who knew her have contended the note, which reportedly contained a meditation on rapture, the hereafter, and the innate mystery of life, was not a suicide note, but rather a diary entry or song concept. Her ashes Mm -hmm. were scattered into the Pacific Ocean after a ceremony organized by a few close friends at the Self-Realization Fellowship in Pacific Palisades. Um, Yeah, there was no obituary published of her death because she was so obscure by then. So that really kind of a sad sad ending because her two albums are really kind of like incredible and like very, like pretty excellent and like really Mm -hmm. sophisticated and everything. And she did have an affair with J.D. Souther, who I heard on like a BBC radio documentary. And of course he was the, you know, running dog with the Eagles. He he co-wrote a couple of their songs. And he said, when they asked like why wasn't, she more he said he was talking about how brilliant she was. And they asked, like, well, why why didn't she have more success? And he's like, you've heard the music. <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. uh it's like it's good, but it's like weird and it's not the most accessible kind of thing. I mean, if you're in the kind of mood or headspace for it 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 feels very intimate and it's like it's very good but it's not exactly like take it easy or yeah even it's certainly like, not take it easy or even like Joni Mitchell you know yeah. who had some big like pop hits but there are some yes, real bangers
2: very, yeah it's uh Yeah. It it has a little bit of a Jim Sullivan vibe, but like, definitely. I thought a
1: lot about it, especially with Mm -hmm. their like kind of sad, mysterious end, like later in the seventies and like how they didn't make it. And, and she does have a song. Um, God, what was, I think I sent it to you this morning. It was like the machine chariots or something. Oh God. What was it? Enchanted sky machines. Off her right, first yes. album mm-hmm. yeah which is like it's okay because like the the good people right the gentle people <laughs> yeah. are going to be taken away by the en- enchanted sky machine so she i guess clearly into ufos the song yes. before that is loping along through the cosmos
2: if I told you some secrets, would you say I'm unreal? Uh, yes. Please hurry enchanted sky machines. Take all the gentle home. I believe in the beginning. Won't be too far away. I believe the beginning. I say like, you know. I mean, just
1: ending. like just like Jim Sullivan. She's yes. like wants mm-hmm. to get taken away by a UFO. Yeah. Very Oof. interesting. Uh, David yeah. Crosby and Graham Nash both played on her first album. Um, Some background stuff. But okay, so her early life is kind of weird and interesting. So she grew up I think she was born she was born in LA, but grew up kind of in Oakland. Her father, Milford Bun Sill, an importer of exotic animals for use in films, owned a bar in Oakland in which Sill learned to play the piano. But uh, her father died when she was eight, and her mother moved with her and her other siblings to LA where Onetta, her mom, soon met and married Tom and Jerry animator Kenneth Muse. So this guy was like kind of in kind of the Hollywood world. I guess he was a children's cartoon animator. And I guess like this guy was like an alcoholic and like a huge asshole and was abusive. And I think some people who knew Judy alluded to the fact that maybe he was sexually abusing her because she ran away, I think when she was like 14 or 15. And she also talked about Molly Ringwald mentioned this Rolling Stone article um, Mm -hmm. from like
4: 1972.
1: Mm -hmm. And she talks in the interview about the school she had to go to. This is uh, an interesting quote. She was talking about like, my stepfather was dumb and cruel. And it was like unbearable to like live with them. And she says, then I was so miserable. I flipped out in public school and had to go to a private one. All the rejects from public schools went there if they could afford to two innocent little old ladies owned the place and ah, uh, they didn't know what was going on we used to have stag movies at recess get high at lunchtime there was always good grass around one of the senior guys ran guns to Cuba stuff like that i had a good time there i was student body president of the rejects <laughs> so it's like hmm. wait what like you were at this like weird private school for like wayward children uh, uh, like uh, but like ones who like had some money and one of the guys there like ran guns to Cuba this would have been because wait how old is she was she born in 1944 Mm -hmm. yeah so this would have been well I mean high school this would have been what 1958 59 so this would have been like around the time when Castro was like fighting his guerrilla war against Batista and I forget who the I don't know if it was like David Atlee Phillips, I think Barry Seal talked about running guns to Castro or no, Frank Sturgis. Frank Sturgis ran guns to Castro in the late 50s when the CIA was kind of like supporting both sides and hedging their mm-hmm. bets. And it apparently it wasn't clear yet that, you know, Castro was going to embrace Marxism. But she never mentions like what this school is. You know, and like what the name of it is, because I love the, it sounds like one of those sus like wilderness survival schools, right?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Where they uh, yeah. like lock you in a room and torture you and, and right. do all kinds of crazy shit. And um, also, what the fuck? They played stag films at recess. Yeah. Like, yeah, they played porno to like high school students at recess and everybody was just smoking mm-hmm. grass the whole time. Like what? What kind of fucking school is
2: this? Yeah. (laughs) In L.A. Like, yeah, hmm, I don't know.
1: Very kind of bizarre.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Hmm.
1: Let me see if there's anything else. Yeah,
2: I wonder, like, how reliable... uh, that. that, Well, I mean, if it's true, it's very strange. Uh, Well, as she kind
1: of goes on, like, further into, you know, talking about, (laughs) like, her adolescence, Um, you know, she was... Yeah, she said there were a lot of people at that school who kind of expressed themselves through crime, you know. The alternatives were to be a beatnik, or if you were more of a violent nature, to be a lowrider, a criminal. I liked both of those. I was attracted, my intellect was attracted to uh, deep pursuits like the beatniks, but another part of me was attracted to danger. I always found myself being the opposite of what every situation called for. If I was around lowriders, I'd come on intellectual. If I was around intellectuals, I'd be a lowrider. After I graduated, I got married to a lowrider from Sherman Oaks, just for something to do, you know? And, okay, so then they, uh, he said, that boy was a Scorpio, very daring. He later got killed going down the Kern River Rapids in a rubber raft on LSD. My second husband, well, that's another story. He's still going down the Rapids. We're in the process of getting divorced right now. Then, I guess, she took some music classes at Valley College after high school. And then, oh, actually, I hadn't seen this. She says, quote, then one day I called up this friend, the guy who ran guns to Cuba. He was extremely psychopathic, had no conscience at all. His eyes were always at half mast and he didn't care about anything. I admired that in him. I thought it was an attractive quality because he didn't seem to feel anything. He was impervious to it all. I said, Spencer, I'd like to be involved in a crime of some kind. So why don't you fix something up and call me back? I was thinking along the lines of stealing tires or something. But Spencer introduced me to an armed robber. The idea kind of attracted me. I don't know. I can't explain the hopelessness and helplessness I felt in the air, but uh, it seemed like the thing to do, the right thing. So this guy and me, we began to do armed robberies. We did six or seven liquor stores and filling stations. Sometimes it was quite exciting. We'd go to a motel afterwards and spill the loot out over the bed. This guy fixed downers all the time. I was a little intrigued by the needle, but I didn't know what it was going to lead to later. I guess Judy falls silent for a minute, staring gravely at the palms of her hands, resting in her lap. Quote, I carried a thirty eight. I would rehearse the holdups with it in front of a mirror, try different ways to see which seemed the most treacherous. You heard about that nervous armed robber who said, Okay, mother sticker, this is a fuck-up. Well, that was me. I still don't know whether I'd have used the gun or not. Maybe... Well, eventually we got caught. I'd moved in the shack with an AWOL sailor and a friend and a dog in that seedy area over over near the industrial section on Sherman Way in Laurel Canyon. One night I came home and the police were waiting. They arrested us all. They even busted my dog. I was very numb. I didn't care one way or another. That's why I was doing these robberies, I guess, because my heart was reaching out, trying to get me to care about something. So then I was sent to the state reform school in Ventura, the same one Cheryl Crane went to. Remember Lana Turner's daughter who killed Johnny Stampinato? I was up there nine months. A lady therapist was very nice to me, although the other inmates, who were mostly younger than me, made my life hellish. They resented me because I'd already been to college and didn't have to go to school like they did, stuff like that. But that lady therapist would just look into my eyes, and she was very, very kind. So I told her the truth, you know. I told her I wanted to get out, and she explained what I would have to do to get out. I would have to develop a conscience. So I tried. (laughs) I don't know to this day whether I was really doing it or just faking it to get out. I did my best, though, and I got my time cut short, but I got some good out of being in there. I was the assistant to the art teacher and the music teacher, and I was also the church organist. I learned a lot of gospel lyrics, and that was really good for me. I learned a lot of good music while I was in the joint. Hmm. Okay. So then then she got into LSD after she like went back to live in the valley and... That was in 64 when LSD first came out. I tell you, when I first took acid, I didn't know what was happening. I mean, I didn't know what you are supposed to do or feel or anything. I had never had such extreme changes before, you know? Laughing and crying all the time. Then I met an acid dealer. I went by his place to cop and ended up moving in with him that same day. We took some LSD together and listened to Gil Evans play Out of the Cool. It was a great romance for a while. So that guy was a bass player, and then she decided I could play bass, so then she started like working as a bass player in the Valley for a year and a half, just taking acid Mm -hmm. every single day um, and playing bass. And then I think she says she got, she began to flip out. She was overdoing it. She had a lot of trouble getting back. I was confused all the time. I tried to regain the old state of the first few times I took acid when I felt like an innocent human being citizen of earth, but it was no good. I felt kind of cast out in a sea alone. "'Around then, I ran into this guy I'd known in college, Bob Harris. "'When I heard him play the piano, he was so good, I felt I should marry him. "'So I did. "'Like me, he was an addictive personality, I guess, and he was attracted to heroin. "'We met some people who shot it, and I was immediately attracted. "'I knew I was going to become a junkie, and I did. "'Before long, we were both up to a couple of bags a day. "'To raise the money for junk, we both pulled various scams, "'conniving and scheming and lying and tricking people out of their money.' Pretty soon, I realized that I could come up with more money by myself, so I went out on my own and started hooking, among other things. As a hooker, I wasn't ever... Well, my heart wasn't in it because I didn't care that much about getting hot at that time. Oh, you know, I feigned excitement and thought up clever schemes to make it go real quick, but all I really cared about was getting that needle in my veins, squeezing off. Well, that went on for years. At one point, I lived with a smack dealer, and I was shooting up to 15 to 20 bags a day. We lived on Central Avenue in downtown L.A., and that was really getting down in the pits, see... That's Skid Row. Uh, I started getting really desperate, got busted a couple times, went to jail a few times. Mm. So she was just like a junkie for like several years.
2: Yeah. And then
1: is she OD'd a couple times. Uh, I think her husband or somebody else died. I think, oh, her brother died of, an, of uh, an OD. Or no, he he died of a liver infection the same day she OD'd. So then she kicked it after she got arrested, got probation. Then started having fan... Okay, so in jail, she had a recurrent fantasy about becoming a songwriter, you know? So when I got out, I started doing that. I started writing songs, they just kept getting better and better. All kinds of improbable things began to happen to me. I was hustling and scuffling to get by. I worked sometimes as a bass player, lived on and off with various friends. At one point, I lived in a 55 Cadillac with four other people. We slept in shifts, but it was in the summertime, so it wasn't all that bad. Ha! I had one set of clothes and a toothbrush, and that was it, but it felt good, you know? not to be a fucked up junkie anymore. Also, I got into reading real deep books, books about religion and the occult, and I could see that I was gonna have to write songs that were about those things, you know? At first, I didn't have the psychic defenses to put it all in the right places, but I felt that if I kept going in that direction as hard as I could, it might all work out, and I came to some important inner realizations, trying to make the laws of nature work for me instead of against me. I felt instinctively that it was my duty to throw myself into it all the way, so, I did. So then, I guess a lot of synchronicities happened, and she got a lot of like lucky breaks to like record in Pat Boone's recording studio and et cetera, et cetera. She met another Scorpio. She really likes talking about meeting Scorpios and <laughs> then then she tried Peyote, <laughs> and uh, I guess like the peyote made her songwriting better. Okay, so then, yeah, she meets Geffen eventually. David is the best person in the business for an artist to be involved with. I've seen him be real ruthless for the sake of the artists who work for him. When I first met him, I thought he was some kind of knight in shining armor, you know, but I didn't understand the other things, the things that made him such a ruthless businessman. Sometimes I find it hard to get along with him personally, but I always trust him as far as business stuff goes, and I wouldn't want to be with anyone else. He's not always easy to deal with, especially for someone as crazy as I am i mean he he may be a devil, but he's
2: our devil <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> anyways,
1: uh, yeah, I don't know. what do you think about all that
2: yeah uh, I mean it's interesting yeah it was uh I was reading a little bit of this article. Um, I don't think I put it in the workflowy, but it's from uh, the new collection uh it's by Matthias de I guess it's just from uh twenty twenty one and it's kind of about it's about Judy Sale and just how uh you know why she didn't have the fame of some of her label mates and why you know she's only kind of gaining more recognition now and a lot of it uh you know has to do with i think what you kind of she alluded to in her remarks about like not feeling a you know commitment to being sexy you know like uh back then you kind of had to have like sort of a a like a a sex appeal like especially you know uh earlier on but also uh the author uh, suggests that, you know, it had to do actually with kind of not only just like the esoteric nature of her uh, music, but kind of the the Christian focus of it, I think is interestingly relates to kind of what we were talking about. You know, they talk about how um, it was kind of perceived that because she got, you know, as you gave in the narrative, like she got so into kind of like religious music and not like sort of navel-gazing-type music, but just, like, like you know, gospel. very, like, epic, yeah, like, you know, sweeping uh, ruminations on, like, these religious themes, you know. Uh, I'll just read from from what uh, you said, actually. Many former addicts turn to religion on their road to recovery. As explained in a Psychology Today article, both religion and addiction offer a feeling of connection to something higher or bigger than ourselves. Something that feels like a certainty in a world that is beyond control. Eh, eh, you know. Needless to say, uh, Sill's biography seems to read at times like a series of unfortunate events and bad decisions feeding into each other. Religion, then, much like drugs before that, must have provided her with a firm footing on life and an appreciation for existence. Sill's music is the sound of discovery, the sound of self-realization and of purpose. Nevertheless, regardless of the rising popularity of songs with religious themes during the 1970s, many still associated negative characteristics with "quote unquote" religious music, and this association persists among many today. The link between religion and addiction has been interpreted as an inherent ne- ne- negative danger. Sorry, an inherent negative danger ever since Karl Marx's infamous "religion is the Open of the masses." Here we go. This anti-religion attitude has persisted among many in the music world. One of the biggest and most beloved singer-songwriter anthems of the 70s, John Lennon's Imagine, is explicitly anti-religion. Yeah, that's yeah. an, uh, you know, but I always think of his song, like, uh, the song that he wrote when Bob Dylan wrote You Gotta Serve Somebody. Um, yeah. You know, after he kind of got into Christianity and John Lennon got, like, so pissed off and he wrote that song Serve Yourself because he was just, like, outraged at the Whoa. idea of someone else being religious. Yeah, great. <laughs> Be your own god. Yeah. But, yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. But yeah, even to this day, we are rubbed the wrong way by religious music. Be it Bob Dylan's Save in the early 80s, Cat Stevens' conversion into Yusuf Islam, or more recently still, Kanye West's embrace of Christianity with Jesus is King, religious messages and sentiment in music have often been repelled, met with a sense of disdain and suspicion by audiences. In a particularly damning article, enemy writer Mark Beaumont delivers a condemnation of Christianity in popular music. To succumb to it feels a major step backwards as if ideological progress never happened. To turn purely Christian musically is to deny progress, to champion conformity. <laughs> the author kind of goes on to talk about how that, you know, it's like incredibly ironic to uh, kind of say like, you know, to d- dismissing religion on the grounds that it's like, you know, it's basically like a puritanical moral judgment about the weakness of the devotee. You know, it's ironic. Mm-hmm. They're quoting a Stephen T. Asima, but you kind of see like how perhaps at least in this in this reading, there is kind of this, like, aversion to her, like, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, people kind of recoiled from the spirituality of uh her music, like, in this interesting, yeah, like, kind of like a, you know, a very ironic, like, hypocritical way that was, like, very sanctimonious and from people who often were, like, you know, often their own, like, spiritual, but I guess, you know, it was... Yeah, it was. It wasn't witchy enough. It was too, it it was too doctrinal. It was yeah. It was like too Christian. It yeah, wasn't it was satanic enough for them. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> satanic enough.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and like, hey, Farid, I think it holds up well though. Um, yeah, it's good. And, um, and when you yeah. look at her, when you look at her like background, like before she started, you know, writing songs, like she's not somebody that grew up in some kind of like Christian bubble and like didn't see the kind of like the dark side of life. If anything, I mean, she went pretty extreme into, I don't know, cry Like, she had some weird CIA, like, arms smuggler guy. Like, a teacher had to rob liquor stores, apparently. Some guy named Spencer, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, took LSD every day for a year and a half. And then became a junkie and supported herself with, yeah you know, sex work. Like, just, like, she really had like a bumpy ride and so like yeah, yeah let it her sing like about it like christian kind of, stuff whatever
2: <laughs> it seems like it was kind of this condescending thing of like almost like saying that they were equally bad in some way you know to be like a drug addict and then to be religious you know it so just felt fa- like that's the thing like i'm glad i found s- you found something that works for you like i'm glad you know <laughs> that you find comfort or yeah you know, it's the same kind of thing of like oh it's comforting to them like you know but i don't need that because i you know have reality which is like you know whatever John Lennon believed in imagining or whatever uh-huh. uh, yeah and yourself.
1: I mean people like Geffen seem to be all too happy to let them indulge in like that side of yeah. the panish side of their personality yes. like Puck, you know I mean luckily. it's good for business if people start to look at themselves like they're a god I guess up to a point mm-hmm. you know you can always have a kind of ego meltdown people can lose perspective but like Was that not the goal of the kind of the rock industry, particularly going into the 70s? Like it had been well established, I think, by the time, you know, Judy Seale came around in like 1971.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because like really, like if you think about like historically, like religion and music like really go hand in hand, like a lot, you know, but obviously there is like always like concern over any kind, like, you know, all different types of, you know, there's a, this is a discourse that isn't as present like in a contemporary american society around the morality of art like in fact it's become like a totally like uh disordered discourse that i, mean, I wouldn't necessarily mm. say is like better where it's just like things that are like morally horrific like are almost like morally valid like you know the the axiology almost is that like these things are good like for their own sake because like you know it's bad to be moralistic about art or something you know so therefore like you know, yeah. having art that's, like, morally, like, vacuous and or, like, morally pernicious is, like, somehow valorized. I feel like that, well, like, you know. it's a proof
1: of how, like, free our society is. Yeah, or something like that.
2: that. I mean, that's definitely, yeah, that's definitely a value of, like, this, you know, like, 70, 60s and 70s music scene for whatever reason. But, like, you know, it's weird that, like, you know, you have this kind of thing now where, like, conventionally speaking, even if there can be, like, a tension between like the illicitness of music or what really is music or certain types of music. Usually like it did have like a, you know, she was inspired by like Beethoven, I think. Right. Like usually there Bach. Was she really a, liked a Bob, Bach. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right, right. yeah Pardon um, <laughs> But uh, yeah. But, um, the, but no, uh, yeah.
1: And I mean, how much of American music in particular, you know, is like modern American music can trace its roots back to like church music, basically. Yeah. I mean, certainly with like African American music. So it's a like weird thing a that now way. it's
2: kind of like a weird, unprecedented thing that there's like, you know, I mean, even in Islam, like, you you know, there's a huge, like, uh, discourse and controversy around, like, the legitimacy of music. But they're also like, you know, when music does appear like discursively, like often it's like in a religious context, you know, even though there can be controversy about it. Uh, so like or in an Islamic discourse that is, you know, uh, like internally. So, uh, you know, when the topic of music is addressed, like, it's seen as something that has, like, a certain sort of sacrality. Uh, so it's weird that, like, now, like, the sort of pop music uh, standard ideology is that, like, you know, religion is, like, toxic to music. And, like, if you if you believe, in, like, if you're religious, get out of here. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel
1: like even if, like miley did a sort of like a cover of like a country ballad that involved like christian themes like some people would be like this is toxic it's fascist yeah it's like
2: she's, <laughs> it's she's embracing fascism. fascism yeah
1: uh, but like you know a song like jesus was a Crossmaker" is a, it's yeah, a pretty that's cool about song the,
2: yeah John well as the
1: soon soccer. as i heard it i thought did she read nikos kazanzaka's last temptation of christ and it turns out yes she did because that's the whole thing in like it, both in the book and the movie is that like yeah. when you meet up with Jesus, he's like making crosses for the Romans. And then, uh, he, he grows from there, but it's kind of funny. It's kind of about JD Souther being a fuckboy. boy. What is it? It's like, he's like a rebel and a heartbreaker, but Jesus was a crossmaker, you know? And, and when the bridegroom comes, that's another like very old school, like Christian almost like, will the circle be unbroken kind of song. And like that shit's cool, you know? And, She's still very influential today. When I first listened to her, like, recently, I was, like, I was, like, oh, that's what Jenny Lewis was doing in, like, the late 2000s. She was just doing, like, a Judy Sill, like, Judy Sill Records. Because, like, they, she copied her, like, vocal style. Like, uh, do, you, do you remember? I don't know if you ever listened to Rilo Kylie, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. like, her solo albums, like, kind of after Rilo Kylie are, like, very much, like, but, like, not as, I don't I, as I recall, not as deep in terms of the lyricism, you know, and like the spiritual theme It's mostly about just like it was called acid tongue. So it was really just about like doing acid. Um, Mm -hmm. but like she really made her vocals sound extremely like Judy Sill, which is why it's Mm -hmm. weird that like I never heard of her until much more recently. You know, I would have thought I, she must have like shattered her out in like interviews or something. It'd be kind of Mm -hmm. fucked. (laughs) It's like weird if she didn't. But a lot of people have covered um, her work since then. It's like popped up in movies so now she's like she has a bit of a falling but i think she's quite good and yeah um i'll definitely you know, be listening
2: to some more of her
1: yeah sure. yeah it's some good shit yeah. the phoenix uh that's a good <laughs> good song like i'm not as sussed out by judy so i mean even though she was obsessed with the occult i'm like a little bit less sussed out by her than by kate bush i feel like kate <laughs> bush was a little bit more into being like a suss witch and like making a deal with the devil yeah well i mean judy there's, sill yeah there's she's a vigilant yeah, like the she vigilante was, she,
2: was, she yeah uh, she was vigilant and yeah she was uh you know she was she was more in the the serato mustakim than yeah kate bush you know i think that she wasn't all about being a uh a, a witch per se i mean people read like very uh widely i guess at that time but like you know i mean really there's like layers of this stuff you know like you can there's like, you know, magic that's like pretty uh, benign, like, or just like doesn't really have like a malicious purpose. And then there's like, bleh, bleh, like, I'm evil, like, <laughs> you know, like. Uh, no, exactly, exactly. Yeah, there's definitely and like a hierarchy there. Like, and the, 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 you, you'll success. find the
1: whole spectrum in LA, you know, and yeah, like probably sure. definitely in the music industry, which she said, I think was like one of the most evil industries ever, uh, as she described it. She said, maybe it's not more evil than other ones, but like, as she's seen it it's full of sickos and she's right um yeah but so unfortunately she got the the short end of the stick and uh did not get the glory that she probably deserved
2: yeah yeah she was a person of the book and she could not be taller she had (laughs) she had to go
1: um, uh we gotta yeah, find we one day we'll track down spencer the weird guy who worked at like the reform yeah. school showing pornos to teenagers and was a psychopath and taught her how to rob liquor stores yeah she. i'd love to know who that guy whenever we find a spencer in the future we gotta remember
2: yeah i mean interesting yeah interesting both jim sullivan both and judy Sale. you know spiritual uh musicians like interested in in kind of like ufo or esoteric topics uh you know, maybe ahead of their time in some ways. Like, you know, they mm-hmm. bo- they both had to go. They both couldn't they, stick around. You're right.
1: Yeah. They did have to go. And, yeah, you know, they, once she dropped that F slur on Geffen. Yeah, true. Don't yes. do it. It's right. like, that's like outing apparently Peter Thiel. Was,
2: according to Wikipedia, she was openly bisexual. So. Oh, yeah, she was. You
1: know. Yeah, she had a lot of, like, famous, like, stormy affairs with, like, lots of different people. Um, so, you know. But, you know, at the same time, like, just don't. I think it was more the disrespect than anything. <laughs> right, yes. Like, you know, uh, you don't say that shit like that in public about Geffen. She made fun of his shoes. That was,
2: yeah, that was really, you know, a bridge too far.
1: Yeah, he had to, uh, he had to get, like, Warner Communications, Kinney Parking Company agents to come, you know, yes, take her out. and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. make it look, like, vague. Just, like, st- like, strew some, like, song lyric sheets around her and then be like, oh, it was a suicide.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: But i don't know or they just broke her down you know and got her trapped in the snare of like opioid addiction um Mm -hmm. and stuff so it's a tough road road out there From August eighth, twenty twenty one, they ask, "What's the best known evidence of Otto Scorzani or Paladin Group's involvement with the Green Berets?" Hmm, good question. Otto Scorzani comes up quite a bit. I would say in our episodes, he's made a lot mm-hmm. of cameo appearances. Yeah, we haven't done like a dedicated Scorzani mm-hmm. deep dive yet, but I think just back in Contra Six, we talked about um, his some of his activities with. uh, S.S. Führer Gerhard Mertens, and Merrick's AG. And of course, uh, which honestly feels like another, it probably was just another like tentacle sort of company front for the Paladin group or Deispina or Odessa or, you know, all these different names that we have for it, right? But Mm -hmm. it's kind of describing like the same phenomenon. I mean, maybe they're, they're... there's slight differences between all these different uh, orgs. But I think the, the crux of what they're asking here is uh, I haven't been able to find the actual article, unfortunately, but Wikipedia says citation needed, by the way, um, the Soviet propaganda outlet TASS uh, alleged that Paladin was involved in training us green berets for Vietnam missions during the 1960s. So, okay. So the, the Soviet news magazine, you know, the Soviet news agency TASS Mm -hmm. uh, did, Published something like that in the late sixties, saying that um, that the Paladin Group and people like either Scorzani himself or people in his orbit were training U.S. Green Berets for combat in Vietnam. Now,
2: mm.
1: uh, I think knowing everything we know about Scorzani, I would say that sounds Be- definitely about
2: believable. Right. Yeah, it's definitely not like you know an outrageous slander. Like, wasn't there an SS guy who? Literally became a Green Beret.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, here, here's where because I think we might, you know, I, I think a full deep dive on Scorzani and we're we're gonna uh, get to when we get back to like the international Nazi underground, the Werwolf uh, network. Um, we'll probably do like a deeper dive on all of his activities, but just to kind of address maybe like the little slice of in this question about the Green Beret specifically, I found a few articles from like pretty mainstreamy, just whatever news websites. Uh, talking about these now here's here's what's interesting okay because the actual nazis that ended up you know coming to the u.s or under paperclip and things like that like after world war ii most of those people were kind of done uh, those people were sort of under the watchful eye and protection whatever of like the cia i think right because, like, Paperclip was eventually, like, a, kind of a CIA program. Even though they were working, obviously, with the military, like, building rockets and stuff like that. Um, but the, the Nazis themselves were brought in under this top secret thing. Because, you know, it was still politically explosive at the end of World War II to, like, bring actual Nazis. But the U.S. Army found a little loophole with that. So a lot of the people that ended up coming over here and, like, getting asylum... And then joining the Green Berets were people from other countries that were occupied by the Nazis or countries that like had been allied with the Nazis, particularly in Eastern Europe during World War Two and uh, distinguished themselves in like fighting the Soviets. So those people who like so effectively, it's kind of like the Banderites, right? Like It's like mm-hmm. effectively they're Nazis, but they weren't German. And because like that would have you wouldn't have been able to do this uh, in any kind of like public way if um, if they were actual German Nazis. But like a Lithuanian Nazi, like a Czechoslovak uh, anti-communist, a Polish anti-communist, those guys came in. So there are a few figures like that. A lot of them came over on the Lodge Philbin Act, which was passed by Congress in 1950, which was named after Massachusetts Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. You know, a real old Boston Brahmin. And this allowed foreign nationals to enlist into the U.S. Army, particularly the Special Forces. So Lodge's intentions were to recruit Eastern Europeans into the Volunteer Freedom Corps, yet some trickled into the ranks of Colonel Banks' new force, the Green Berets. The transition was a gift as they lived rugged lives in post-World War II Europe. Those who enlisted were guaranteed American citizenship if they served honorably for five years, a trade-off that served both sides well. The training commissioned their language skills, knowledge of the culture, and physical attributes to traverse the terrain, which earned, quote, the lodge boys immediate respect. So let's see. There was one lesser known lodge boy named Rudolf G. Horvath. He was a Hungarian refugee who heard Voice of America radio broadcast in July 1950. He journeyed through Czechoslovakia and discreetly at night through the Russian-controlled territory of Austria. He swam across the Danube River and waved down an American military police chief. So, okay, so this guy fled, like, the horrors of communist uh, Hungary. I guess there were doubting Thomases in the CIA who objected to, like, some of this uh, green, the the development of, like, the Green Berets um, because they were fearful of their charter. I guess the the, the constant, like, turf war between, like, military special forces Mm -hmm. and CIA kind of. You know, beefing over who gets to do what. So it says here, I'm reading on coffeeordie.com, by the way. Um, Mm -hmm. The CIA had competition with Banks' new troops as they, too, pulled from Eastern Europeans, some being Nazi collaborators, to fulfill a secret mission dubbed Operation Bloodstone. The CIA's goal was to inflict political warfare, which ultimately led to broader tasks, such as assassinations and sabotage. Considering that their other options were prisoner death, it was an offer many Nazis could not refuse. So they did the dirty work to obtain information on the Soviets and Eastern European nations. Hmm. Yeah, so then he this article talks about Laurie Allen Torney, who was a Finnish uh, officer um who uh, fought in yeah. World War II. So right. he he was a member he became of the Yeah, Larry Thorne he Yeah, Larry Thorne. In Arlington, that he was exactly. SS. Yeah. So he yeah, he's basically like a like Green Beret hero, like yeah. uh you know, blah blah blah. Yeah, it's um, funny.
2: You can like, you know, find articles about him like that are just like in, you know, like Beck Ops magazine. Like Task and Purpose, like like, Soft An amazing hero who hated communism so much (laughs) he fought for three armies, like, including the Nazis. Including (laughs) the Nazis. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Yeah. He
1: was part, uh, he's an elite member of the Finnish Alpine Ski Troops who fought the Soviets behind enemy lines during the Winter War using only what they could pack on their backs and the sleds they pulled. Um, So he was a prime candidate to join the best of the best among the German military. I'm seeing here with the, uh, The Totenkopf uh, skull on his hat and Mm -hmm. the SS on his collar uh, during World War II. And then next to it, um, a U.S. Army dress (laughs) after that. Very cool. So... He volunteered in June 1941, right when Barbarossa started. He volunteered and was selected for the Waffen SS, serving for a year before returning to the Finnish military to fight in the continuation war against the Russians. His methods using guerrilla warfare and deep penetration ops earned him instant notoriety. His unit going so far as to name themselves Detachment Torny, they struck fast with overwhelming precision and escaped before retaliation could be made. The Soviets put a bounty of three million Finnish marks on his head, which equates to $65,000, a huge price for one officer. Um, so the Finns awarded him the 144th Knight of Monarheim Cross, which is equivalent to the Medal of Honor. He bounced between learning advanced sabotage training for a pro-German resistance force in 1945 to his eventual imprisonment after World War II for his Nazi relations. He escaped from prison in December 1948 before the Finnish president pardoned him, a nod to their shared service and detachment Torney. At age 35 and fighting for two armies, Torney boarded a Swedish ship for Venezuela before d- diverting to the U.S., the Finnish communities in New York aided his transition before he had had enough of his life as a carpenter, and enlisted in the U.S. Army under the Lodge Act using the name Larry Thorne. So yeah, so he he ended up getting commissioned as an officer in the 10th Special Forces Group stationed in Bad Tolls Germany. Interesting. So he was he was like in West Germany. Uh, this article mentions like a very strange unit that was like in West Berlin. Where like everything they've done is still classified to this day, mm. um, but Larry Thorne did meet his end uh, because in a lifelong atonement to crush the spread of communism across any battlefield,
2: a- atonement. Yeah. Yeah. What? For, okay. By pursuing like one I'm of the. I'm sorry, Nazi I failed rebels. to stop them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what okay. he was atoning for. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's, it's
1: okay, bro. It's really no big deal. Um, in a lifelong atonement to crush the spread of communism across any battlefield. Thorne deployed to Tin Bien, Vietnam, as a member of the 7th Special Forces Group, A734. On his second tour, he and other Green Berets led unconventional warfare as members of MACV SOG, operating in South Vietnam and performing air reconnaissance missions into Laos during the fall of 1965. On October 18, 1965, the first MACV-SOG cross-border mission carried Thorne and his team on South Vietnamese Air Force helicopters. But as the mission progressed, the weather and lack of visibility forced Thorne's helicopter into the earth. In 1999, his remains were found and returned to the United States. And then he was born. He was buried in Arlington National Cemetery in 2003. Well, yes,
2: he's the only you know, member of the Waffen-SS to be interred in Arlington National Center. Really? Oh, intu- I I'm so.
1: surprised he's the only one. Um, yeah, true. Yeah, so <laughs> I mean, also surprising. what's interesting is a lot of these guys that, Uh, joined the Green Berets sound like some of the very same people that literally kind of set up the original Gladio resistance networks in their home countries like this other guy another lodge boy uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alfo Martinen who was Finnish, um, he led an effort while in the military that hid an enormous cache of weapons and equipment in the event the Soviets invaded. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. He and his band of loyal officers were considered traitors as their plans and intentions of a guerrilla warfare-style resistance was revealed. The Martinens men were told to leave the country in 1945, or they would be arrested. Martinen evaded capture, escaped through Sweden, and became part of one of the first groups under the Act to enter Army Special Forces. So, yeah. So, I mean, that sounds like he was like, literally doing the Gladio thing um, and then managed to escape his country before he could get kind of arrested for doing it. And, yeah, it goes through uh, a couple other people that I mean, a lot of it's really interesting how a lot of these like Nazis ended up serving in Vietnam, doing like kind of the really heavy duty shit that the Green Berets sort of became known for. And like John Wayne, like romanticized in that really bad movie. About the Green Berets, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So that yeah, they were they're called White Star teams that conducted covert counterinsurgency operations, often while wearing civilian clothes, and backed by the CIA in Laos. And this is for this is also from 1957 to, to 1962. So like well before the war, like, properly kicks off, you know, when the U.S. goes in. And then uh, the, the, that particular guy who was in the White Star Group, Jan uh, Janasek, uh, who was a Czechoslovakian border guard, after he retired, he donned another public service uniform as jail deputy for Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. So ooh, you have them going in and being, like, sheriffs and cops and stuff. Hmm. Kind of sus. Oh, yeah, here here's what... Yeah, this is a Bob Cherist from Detachment A Berlin Special Forces Brigade shed some insight on the little-known unit responsible for, quote, stay-behind plainclothes missions during the Cold War. Many of the members of the unit were the result of the Lodge Act, including, quote, men like Peter Astalos, who served in the Romanian and German armies during World War II, Martin Uric, who participated in the largest tank battle of World War II at Kursk, and many more, much of the unit's history is cloaked in secrecy and remains classified. Hmm. Damn. Yeah. So, so that's you know that that's just a short kind of example. Yeah. Um, you, I
2: mean, I definitely I don't know like the there is one thing in terms of like the evidence for his involvement in the Green Berets. I think it's very plausible. Uh, it's very like believable. Like it's a you know I I would be uh, almost surprised if like he weren't involved. I mean, there is that book, uh, the Scorzani Papers. Uh, I think that is the one that, like, fingers Otto Skorzeny as being Q.J. Wynn, which, you know, is a... Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, that's kind of a, The you know, Q.J. Wynn, uh, California office. A debated theory, maybe. Yeah, but... Yeah, exactly. I think I have the right book in mind. Um, it's... But anyway, this is... Uh, it's by Ralph P. Gannis. And that author says, In 1967, an article appeared in the San Diego Union with the headline, German Army Colonel Set Green Beret Pattern. In the lengthy article written by a reporter named Ray McHugh, Scorzani is credited as the model upon which U.S. special forces, commonly known as Green Berets, were formed. The article gave the highlights of Scorzani's military accomplishment, but it's the revelation at the end of the article that draws our attention here. Scorzani stated that his highest compliment came from a U.S. military attaché in Europe who had served in Vietnam. This man told me that the biggest successes of the American army in Vietnam were based on the training and tactics evolved by my special forces. I hope I made some contribution. Vietnam is important to all of us. But again, I don't know like if he included this article in the book or you know, there's like no real footnote and I don't think the article is available online. So I really
1: wish we could get the Soviet source, you know, like the yeah. original TASS article.
2: I mean, it makes sense cuz he was like a famous special forces person and like, you know, he would I mean, he trained
1: Egypt, to- he trained Israel. Yeah. He absolutely like was running around the world. So it, it, it would be almost surprising if he didn't provide training to, especially since, you know, as we as we just laid out, like there were a lot of former Waffen SS people that were in the ranks of the Green Berets. Mm-hmm. So that that probably knew Scorzani or maybe, you know, at some point had crossed paths with them or something. So, you know, it's like highly likely, I think. I see an article here, how Otters Skrzeny, the Nazi who influenced ISIS.
2: <laughs> yeah, great. Right. I
1: mean, he, he I guess he influenced like helmet Mertens to uh, give ISIS weapons. Yeah. And he, yeah. <coughs> I don't know if that's what they mean, though. Yeah, they're talking like, about the Verwolf, special uh, forces who influenced ISIS.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, oh, yeah, some people, we'll, we'll get to this one day soon, but... Uh, yeah it talks about Scorzaini as a paid consultant in guerrilla warfare. Eventually, it spread to al Qaeda through the efforts of Skorzani, his subordinates, and Yasser Arafat really uh I might need a fact check on that and uh, then what? of course
2: uh,
1: that he, well that he he spread his guerrilla warfare tactics to al Qaeda. Uh, it says, it spread to Al-Qaeda through the efforts of Skorzani, his subordinates, and Yasser Arafat. I mean, no, there actually might be something to that. Skorzani was, in effect, a guerrilla warfare consultant for hire to whomever wanted his new tactical creative ideas, including the United States Special Forces. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, why wouldn't they want his skills?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, he was like a, you know, he gave them considerable trouble during World War II. So... Yeah, um, I'm trying to I'm looking up this article now to see like what their, uh, you know, their their line is from, you know. Uh, into al-Qaeda eventually it spread to al-Qaeda all right
1: well I think in a certain type of way if you think about al-Qaeda as sort of a creation of like the Saudis yeah, and like Bill uses like special
2: forces tactics like you know that Skorzeny contributed to well
1: no there ju- just as there were like just as there was like Klaus Barbie kind of advising the cocaine cartels in like the late 70s in South America I think he's saying that maybe Scorzani was involved in providing training to maybe some of these like early kind of Al-Qaeda types, even though,
2: I mean, it's I like feel so like nebulous that's it's in the kind 80s, of like, like a, yeah, like it would have to be like a second degree influence. Cause I don't think that they was. Oh, you're right. Like,
1: Cause he died in 1975. So yeah. yeah, no, you're right. Like it, well, I think that's where his acolytes come in you know, that are still around people like Mertens and there's, there's a few of them.
2: Like his tactics have probably been so widely adopted, like probably like the like tactical ideas that apparently were so valuable. His, you know, tactical genius was so widely adopted that it probably has spread like to a lot of different, you know,
1: well, I'm pretty sure States if you looked at non-States. like the school of the Americas, the JFK school of special warfare, that a lot of the stuff that they have been teaching people for the last few decades is like very heavily inspired by a lot of like Scorsani stuff. If you think about like the Contras and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I think his influence is like pretty wide and yeah, it's all over South America. It even seeps into like the Muslim world and Africa and uh, and all that jazz so yeah I can't find I it's really hard to find uh, the TASS article from the 60s like nobody has bothered to it's just like today you can't find Pootler's like speeches anywhere translated in English because you like all he says is lies so why should we be allowed to see what he says you know I want to see what Taz. you know because sometimes, you know, the, their articles, like, hit pretty well, like, when they're talking about, like, Nazi activities, like, overseas. You know, it was all dismissed at the time as, like, typical Soviet propaganda. But they actually often, yeah, they were more on point uh, than not. It's often. funny. I'm
2: reading this, uh, like, article, you know, it's just, like, kind of, like, a reminiscence about the the Battle of the Bulge, I guess, by, by a veteran. It's literally on battleofthebulge.org. And he's talking about how, you know, Otto Scorzani had people dressed in American uniforms. You know, I think this came up, you know, just by my searching for like, you know, his training of of Americans. Um, But, you know, it's kind of a weird like a, you know, uh, a weird precognition of what would eventually happen where he actually would be training people uh, in the American uh, military, Um, you know, because at the time. They were, like, trying to infiltrate, you know, and they were, like, executed by firing squad for doing so. Um, uh-huh. But, yeah.
1: Exactly. He was, um, he was
2: ready to get into that American uniform.
1: Yeah, Operation Greif. He was auditioning. Uh, was what it was. During the Battle of the Bulge, he led a panzer brigade of German soldiers disguised as American soldiers. But, yeah, we'll uh, we'll dig more into, like, Paladin and group, and, like, their yeah that could definitely be a whole episode, I think and uh, he's he's a major sussler
2: yes I
4: see the vigilante watching in the deep of the night I always find him where his heart is he's fighting the good fight he smells the sin of trouble and prepares to leave he's got his eyes on the horizon reaching higher he's got his eyes on the horizon on his feet I was stranded at the crossroads it was dismal and grey When I asked him for directions he showed me the good way And if the sky is swirling still his pace never swerves Because his heart is always faithful, reaching high You know his heart is always faithful to the captain he serves. So when the storm of deception is around at the beginning, you know the vigilant he's watching, he won't let it in. But then he keeps his vigil constant forces be by he's the fairest of them all and he chooses the good side so we'll champions just cheese and try to make him unsure you know the fires of war burning reaching higher you know the fire 24 hours